You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning at 7:45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. A very good morning to you. Welcome along to Monday morning OTB AM. We're here until half past nine this morning, and we've got a lineup for you today. Mike Carson is going to join us uh, just after uh, nine o'clock to talk about uh, Championship Weekend in the NFL. We know who the Super Bowl is going to be, and we'll talk about that in just a second. We'll have Alan Quinlan in with us a little later on to talk about a uh, reasonably good weekend, you'd have to say, for the Irish provinces and um, an All Irish quarter final to look forward to in the Heineken Cup. And before all that, we've got Kenny Cunningham with us as well. Kenny, how are you? Yeah, all good. Morning yeah, yeah, morning to you. You were uh, you were up late. You're you're more tired this morning than we've ever seen you. You were actually wasn't a, up late. A vat of coffee. You weren't listening. You weren't listening. You're half listening to earwig in the conversation. No, so, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I wasn't you... up. I wasn't up late. I would have stayed up late if I hadn't had this ridiculously early alarm call. So I only got a bit of a taste of the American football last night. You watched one full game and a bit of the second game. No, see, definitely. Well, that's just. That's just lack of, lack of attention. Definitely right there. Where it I watched the first half of the first game. Is that all? That was oh, all. Right, okay, that, you did go to bed very early. Well, it looked as if to, after the first quarter, it looked as if it was all. I mean, that, yeah. New Orleans, I haven't watched a game in American football now, and it's 25 plus years, probably since school. So it would be 25 plus years. So when I went to my pal's house last night, it was an absolute nut job when it comes to American football. So I was the last person he wanted to see because I was literally 20 questions from the very start. Why is that Why is that, Why is that, Why is that being flat? Why isn't he doing that? What, what are you talking about? Explain that to me. I was the last person he wanted to see. But <laughs> he showed a lot of uh, he showed a lot of patience with me. So but early on, it looked as if the Saints were going to run away with it. I nearly left after the first quarter. I said, this game's over, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and they should have won. Um, there was an absolutely ridiculous missed call at the end of the game which would have won the game for the Saints. Um, really? Yeah. One of the most egregious fouls. Imagine how could, Thierry Henry style, Diego Maradona style. It's as big uh, a screw. Controversial, as that. like. So, but how is that possible in relation to the kind of video and what, what they have? All the, uh, the who technology knows? available to them. I mean, it, that's it, a million dollar question. Imagine it could be a billion dollar question. Like, wow. uh, imagine all of. So, this is the first year ever that gambling has been legalized in America on American football they now have official gambling firms uh, they've got a, a casino partner in Vegas and so immediately massive amounts of controversy start going what happened here why Why did the team who was going to win the game not win the game ah, with one whoa. so that's conspiracy what conspiracy theories the conspiracy theories mushroomed in instantaneously now uh, the referees made a crappy call a few minutes later and um, you know it didn't look like a fix it just looked like complete incompetence but it is as big and egregious an error as was it a bad call seen. open to interpretation no. I mean, <laughs> you can mushroom this one out into the old VAR like next year absolutely clocked him off the ball there was, it's as simple as that there was absolutely no attempt uh, whatsoever to stay within the rules in this particular tackle and it would have led did they view it did they actually view the incident they didn't go back but, but it's on the big screen like everybody the whole crowd you can hear the crowd going ah. Oh! And then the crowd see it again, like, and uh, at that stage, the head coach Sean Payton is running like, "Come on, that's, 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 basically that's, you're saying referees should be dictated by the crowd, basically in terms of which which well, decisions they, should, they, they should look they, up at the big screen and go." Oh, but there's, is there nobody upstairs? This some time. There is, is there yeah. technology now. Is there nobody upstairs looking at it and relaying that information? So it's clearly somebody upstairs had a look they, at it. They didn't review it didn't. that play. You can't, you can't challenge, um, you can't challenge non-calls. You can't like so. You know the way they, the system is almost perfect in American football that the coach can challenge a decision. Right. But if there's no decision, right, gotcha. not a challenge. So the, right. You, you can't throw the challenge flag. Now, having said that, I think I still would have thrown the challenge flag in that instance and burned one of my timeouts and gone. I'm sorry. Just wait there, make up your own mind. Yeah, because immediately after the game is over, 
the head coach gets a phone call from the league office who says, sorry about that, we blew that call. Mm. <laughs> it was, it was incredible. Like you, you mentioned the crowd there, and I'm sure you noticed it yourself from the, the, even watching the first half of the game, the noise in the Superdome, obviously renowned around the world for just being this incredible thing. You'd have to wonder just how impossible it was for the Los Angeles Rams to actually get up and running without being able to hear each other whatsoever. I'm sure you've been in situations yourself where you can barely hear what you're saying well, on no. the pitch. Well, see, I was having this conversation with Palomar, one of the very many questions which I asked, which I asked him last night. So he's explaining this to me. You could, obviously, you could, you, could, you could hear it. The noise went up, uh, the noise went down. But I can't think of any other sport. You've referenced like football. It must be terrible going to these places. But th- th- there's no comparison to any other sport because it, so. it's so important in terms to get that information yeah. across. Yeah. In relate- Obviously, they have their plays when they go and set. But if, they, if the quarterback thinks, well, I've got to change this now and he can't get that information, that's absolutely yeah. uh, crucial. There's so, no other sport where you actually call out what you're doing and that's what it's like. that it's that is that important yeah, yeah me, me on the football pitch trying to scream me right winger to get back on the cover right there's a bit a lot of noise there he can't yeah okay fair enough like but not not to this extent yeah not as crucial as this or as important as this so so I was looking at that uh, last night thinking that that's actually no that's borderline that's inherently unfair that's an absolutely well, they're that's, top that's, seed so they got the they, they've worked I, all regular season to get that one I seed and that's a reward it, but for me like the argument of a neutral venue for me seemed a lot more fair than that if that's going to be the case where literally you can't get your play set up well, tactically that's, that's you can't get yourself set up to play but that's totally skewed for me well, there was, there was a big game in the regular season between the two teams and uh, Saints had won in fairly dramatic fashion had Rams actually won that day they would have been the one seed and they would have got the, yeah. the game in the Coliseum at home so like, it would have been a completely different scenario then and that's your reward for being the best team in the regular no, season I absolutely understand what you're saying but I'm saying usually that usually just tips your, the scales ever so slightly in your favour that's, that's the argument for kind of home advantage you'd even argue it the opposite way for me in some respects but in this in this case for me is absolutely huge yeah, that's the case. there hadn't been an away winner at this stage of the of the competition really? since 2012. Was that in both conferences in AFC and NFC? Yeah, right. In, okay, in, so Patriots uh, skewed it as well. Yeah. So and in 2012, both teams won on the road, and this is the first time since. But like, you know, them's the breaks. Everybody knows the rules at the start of the tournament. So I, I like you do know the rules, and I understand you accept and you get on with it. But I'm just talking about the actual rule itself. Looking at last night and the way it's been explained to me, and actually seeing it on the television, I thought. That, that, that's, that seems really unfair. Like that's you know that's a h- absolutely huge advantage because you can see the kind of distress. Yeah. T- trying to get the information across, the uncertainty, the frustration, and to be able to come back from that in the second half and, yeah, and yeah. to win it in overtime. So the second game went to overtime as well. We'll talk about that. The um, the Patriots uh, beat the Chiefs. The evil empire rolls on. Tom Brady is a cockroach. He will just always be. He will be fifty, and he'll still be uh, playing his way to Super Bowls. How did he play last night? How did he? Did Pretty he good. Pretty good. <laughs> really? Pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, he he didn't. So his his um, offensive line protected him, so he had all the time in the world. But he was he was brilliant. A couple of interceptions. <clears throat> um, certainly one in the end zone, and then another one got overturned. There was another interception. Somebody was oh, there was a game winning interception that would have won it, but one of the guys had lined up half a yard in yes. the wrong place. So the scene is though. I was told last night that the Kansas City uh, Stadium has got the highest recorded. Decibel level okay, yeah. in history. Is that oh, right? I thought it was Seahawks. This is what me. This, sure, is, what sure me told, this is what me pal told me. Swallowing everything you were saying last night. This is what he told me. The, so for England to go there, to yeah. go to that type of atmosphere. They came out and they started really well. And they were fourteen nil up for most of the game. Actually, they'd, they'd lead for most of the game until the very end. And the last quarter was completely wild, where there was like three touchdowns and two field goals and just in the last twelve minutes or so. But yeah, it was a great game. Well, that one went to say I enjoyed it. Well. 
I actually did it. I, I had low expectations going up there thinking, oh, bloody hell, this could be a long night. But I must admit, I actually did enjoy the game. I think it's it the best sport quickly. in the world. And it's not my favourite sport in the world. I just think, if you look at it uh, subjectively, best, there is no sport that comes to close say. to it in terms of... It's not my favourite sport, but it's the best sport. Yeah, like, just in terms of the drama that can happen, the, right. the importance on every single play, uh, the way... Like, even, even my heart was beating out of my chest looking at the, the last couple of moments going into overtime uh, when Zerline was taking that kick last night for the Rams to tie the game and to take the game to overtime I was like I'm not a fan of either of these teams and I'm shitting it what is actually happening here this is, this is what sport is all about uh, yeah, you actually, you've made a decent argument there I'll, I'll take that back take the criticism uh, what sport is also about is the indomitable spirit uh, this is from a point to point meeting have a look at this it's Mikey Sweeney's incredible recovery in point to point racing at the weekend have a look so here he is uh, just keep an eye on the jockey he's about to come off oh there he goes he's off he's gone he's dead oh no hang on he's alive what? wait a second hang on He's still alive, and he's making a comeback. What? That is insane. That, that horse is... has got like neck muscles like Mighty Tyson, and he's <laughs> I mean, the, the most impressive thing is the horse like managed to managed to keep the jockey on board. Ask it's Heather like, or Heather, Heather, Heather. Yeah, ask Heather is the horse. That's a huge amount of stress going through the the neck there, the horse. That was pretty impressive, right? Mm. But wait until you see the slow motion of this. Have a look at this, right? So this is absolutely ridiculous. You kind of see that in. In um, normal time, you think, well, that's fine, almost. It was a pretty good recovery. So, uh, yeah, so this is it. It's, um, oh, so thanks to Willie Murphy for this footage, obviously. Just jumped far too early. Now, look how far off the horse. Look, he's actually oh. fly, flowing in. Is his right leg still in the, in the air? There or so is his right leg, is that still attached to the stair? Is that why he doesn't come be. off? It appears to be, yeah. But that's good, um, that's good kind of uh, core strength there. The wrestling, the wrestling ability of that, like they'll be doing that. People doing that in the gyms this week. Early morning sessions down in the gym, they'll be hanging on the horse. You know, core stability and fixing your. And then to get back on and win the race. Now, granted, the other horse looks like he's just completely finished, uh, and and I don't think he even finished his second. But and he actually won it. Yeah. Wow. That's insane, isn't it? Like gra- gravity is a lie. Gravity is a complete lie. Watching that, that is absolutely incredible. But there, were, there was something. Was there at a race meeting last year? There was something fairly similar to that, but nothing on that level, including the comeback. You say the other horse was flagging, but to actually win it so healthily in the end was incredible. That, that is that was probably the sporting moment of the weekend, really, or a sporting achievement of the weekend. So the Calais Point to Point Committee had the video for the first one. You can get that at uh, IRS IRIS Racing on Twitter. Um, Amazing. They like, go point to pointing, it turns out. There's a bit of drama there, too. Wow. Really impressive, yeah. Lad's got to be devastated, though, isn't he? Who lost? They went, went ahead there. He's got to be thinking. Yeah, your man's off. Maybe he just got spooked by that. It wasn't one of them. He actually literally thought he'd come off the horse, and he literally he was giving it one of them, heading up to the, <laughs> heading up to the finishing line, and only for your man to speed fast him. <laughs> yeah, so Willie Murphy caught that moments. incredible recovery and slow mo on his iPhone while he was standing at the last at Calais point to point in Cork. Here's what's coming up on the show: the rounds against the Patriots around about a quarter past nine this morning. We'll talk rugby with Alan Quillen around about eight forty-five. Uh, got the sports news for you at eight thirty-five with Darren, and we're going to talk Salah City and Spurs with Kenny. We might talk a little bit about uh, should Liverpool buy a right back or sorry, a full back, a uh, uh, left back even um, in about ten minutes' time. In the meantime, here's the sports pages. Starting with the Irish Times uh, this morning, it is Ulster set to march across border on Brexit weekend. See what they did there? All the English teams out of the uh, Heineken Cup. Um, and a great picture of um, Sean O'Brien with his head up Devon Toner's ass, basically. But great to see Sean O'Brien back. Great to see Robbie Henshaw back as well. 
just in time for some action in the Six Nations. I suspect Henshaw's probably going to start. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Like we're, we're going to speak to Brian O'Driscoll this week and get his uh, midfield depth chart for the final say on it. But I think when you've got them fit, when you've got Ringrose and Henshaw both fit and flying at the moment for Leinster, you've got to start them. When you say fit, though, you talk, you f- there's a difference between physically fit and obviously match fit. I mean, are they, how, many games, how many games have they played? 60 minutes. 60 minutes. After 12 well. exam. I think, I, think that's a, I think that's a nice little tune-up before the England game. I think he looked really good. I think he carried really, really well on uh, yesterday afternoon. Like, I think there's absolutely no question that... Uh, Bundy? Bundy's fitting, fitting well? Played every game? Had every game last year? I, 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 just don't, I just don't see how you can make that argument over Henshaw and Ringrose. Like, it, it is certainly more of an argument than it, than it was after what happened in uh, the Autumn Internationals, for sure. I just think the, the way that they, they've, they've been handcuffed at that provincial level, like it's just a duo, it's kind of uh, science. They are, they, I think they've hardly played together, is my point, because of the injuries, that they've, they've both been injured at different times. Yeah, but there's sort of an IQ you build up over time. It's not like that they've lost that connection with one another just because Robbie Henshaw's been injured for a while. Like the, the prolonged period of them playing last season for Leinster would also stand them in good stead. Have they played loads of games together? They certainly played more than yeah. Bundy and Guy Ringos have played. And at this point, surely they've played more than Henshaw and Aki have played, but that's quite some time ago at this point. I don't think they have. Oh, Joe's not letting this one go, is he? He's not letting it go. I, just, I, like, I, don't, I don't see I how Aki is ahead of Robbie Henshaw in the pecking order, obviously because of his November internationals. He was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Who? Joe Bundy. Bundy. He was like, brilliant. But I still think Robbie Henshaw was the first choice midfielder last year, and there's no way you can move him out of that position. Except that Bundy played every game in the Six Nations. In the Six Nations? Yeah. Did he? Yeah. He was the one constant, because... Everybody else got injured. So, uh, Robbie Henshaw does his shoulder score and a try in the first game. Chris Henry comes in. Chris Farrell. Uh, Chris Farrell comes in, plays two games. And then uh, Ringrose is fit. And yes, Ringrose Ring was again. injured for the start of Six Nations. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, uh, that's, uh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get it. Well, I, I still think Hen- Hen- oh. you'll see what Brian O'Driscoll says this week. Oh, but, that's uh, a desperation. That's a desperation no, throwaway comment. For me, it's He's like, leaning on Brian O'Driscoll to bail him out now. It's, 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 it's Ringrose and Henshaw. Like, without question for me. Let's move on. Back, them. Off, back off now, back <laughs> off, back off. You're in a strong position there, but you're wobbling now. You're wobbling now. <laughs> Shane Larry, uh, here's a question for you. Uh, Larry hopes... I'll just read this properly. Larry hopes to kick on after fighting back for Abu Dhabi victory. So that's um, Shane Larry and his daughter on the green at the uh, 18th after an amazing come-from-behind win. It was wire-to-wire, but it was also come-from-behind, which is... Um, is he Ireland's most popular sports person? Is Shane Larry Ireland's most popular sports person? He's pretty close, isn't he? It's like, uh, there, there wasn't a single bad word said about it. Like, even just in terms of a popular sports person as an export, there wasn't a single bad word said about Shane Lowry or nobody yeah. who wasn't delighted for him internationally over the course of the weekend. Yeah, you do hear that, yeah. Even like you said, it's not just a fact in order. You hear a lot of people over here just in comments, oh, nice fella, boom, saw him here, yeah, nice manner and all that. But like you say, even how he's spoken about it over in the States as a person, even as a golfer, in terms of how good he is. I think we all know his qualities that he has. He's a very talented golfer. I know the last couple of years he's been up and down a little bit. But he always struck me as the type, forget about his game, obviously they've all got exceptional games, top 50, 100 golfer. But just like mentally, of course, where, where it really matters, he always looks to me somebody who's capable of playing in the, in the best, the biggest company and not being overawed, somebody who can actually win the big events. And I, I think that's going to happen the next two or three years. He'd be the one. Generally, I throw a bit at the majors. I'm oh, not, not a betting man, but a few quid on, on the majors when they come around. Somebody outside of the you know, decent odds, and he's the one I think the next two to three years is, who's more than capable. You know, not, not one of the top ranked, maybe top six, 12. He's only gone into the top 50 off the back of that, off the back of that win, isn't he? Yeah, like, I, the, thing, the great thing about Shane Lowry is that 
once he's on form, he's actually a pretty tough guy to stop because it's hard to tell what exactly his weakness is with his game. Mm. It's just that it sort of all comes together for him at once or else it all falls to pieces yeah. for him at once. But people referenced like the, what is the US Open a couple of years ago, he had a three yeah. lot, as if like nobody's gone into the last round of a major and like lost the lead. Like, he he you know talked about I mean? that actually. He, he did talk about that. I don't know if it's in this piece or um, in the Times. With, uh, he was talking about just not really giving himself a go that day. Not that he choked, but there was like definitely a phrase... Um, Anyway, uh, the, the, so I don't know if you realise this, he was three down, sorry, he was three back with seven holes left to yeah. play and comes back to win, which is like really ballsy for a tournament where you shoot the lights out on the first round and you're like, oh, I'm going to have to win this now because if I don't, it's a complete waste of my the best round of my European tour career yeah. or uh, career anywhere. I think um, he made the point, I think you might be referencing the point, I think he's quote, I heard him quote, saying that in relation to the US Open, what he learned from it, was the fact he gets in that position again to keep being aggressive, to keep looking to play your shots. I think you made the point he tried to manage you know, the last round and maybe not play his, his natural game. But that's just something you learn. That's just like you learn from experience. So he's in a better place. Than he, from, that, from that experience of the US Open a couple of years ago, clearly he's in a better place. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic win for him. So a step ahead, that's uh, Gary Ringrose and his dancing feet. Ulster will provide intriguing all-island tests, but Saracens look the only team capable of preventing a lesser double. That's Eamon Sweeney's piece inside, although Tony Ward does say that Munster could actually beat Leinster as well. Uh, are the semi-final draws made? Do we know who plays in the semi-final? Is it uh, one and four and two and three? Is it seeded that way? Good question. Blank faces. <laughs> <laughs> Since you started talking rugby, I was, I was gone. I, don't know where, I, was, I wasn't even with you. I wasn't even in the room, to be honest with you. You pre- presume it's uh, Saracens Munster in the semi-final were to line up that way. Um, O'Neill's slow start brings Forrest back down to earth. Dan McDonald was over at uh, Forrest. We'll talk about that a little bit later, actually. And then an interesting piece from Colin Keyes that says, Missed opportunity, a stats show hand pass rule was having the desired effect. So um, Rob Carroll did stats on, I think, 10 games, 10, 10 preseason games, to see how the impact of the new hand passing rule um, was having. Uh, 100 fewer hand passes per game in the 10 games than this time last year and uh, a massive rise in kick passes. The ratio of hand-to-kick passes in the championship was 3.5 to 1, and it was just 1.3 to 1 in the 10 preseason games. So um, everybody wanted less hand-passing, more kick-passing. They got this, and they were like, no, nah, I don't want that. Is that fair enough? No, it's absolutely not fair enough. It, it, it was a huge win on Saturday for the Gaelic Football Managers Union because they've had an absolute roaring success in terms of controlling a narrative and pushing out the idea of what uh, rules should be brought forward. And as I say, it's just been a massive victory for the likes of uh, of Kevin Walsh, the likes of uh, Turlock O'Brien, the people who were naysayers against it, despite the fact that it was never implemented into league football. One vote, if that had swung the other way, the likelihood is that hand-pass rule would have been implemented. Uh, Column Keyes says there it was 25-23, certainly a two-vote gap, so one, one vote swing, and then it would have been a casting vote, which, according to Column Keyes, might well have been a win for the hand-pass rule. So I'm absolutely convinced that some comments from the managers uh, impacted a few of those votes, and as I say, a huge win for them. I just think it's... What, what a point this exercise has, this has all been. Like, why, why, why was this not implemented for the National League and then ditch it? I'm not saying I, would have, I was a huge fan of it. I just really think we needed to see it for the National League. Yeah, I think you got a fair point, unless you actually roll out and have a look at it. I mean, uh, there was such a huge swathe of um, 
<coughs> criticism of the of the of the ham of the hand pass changes that wasn't for managers and players you were hearing a lot of it so that's what quite initially we spoke about it in here and I was thinking well I can see the logic of that yeah let's have a roll out let's have a look you're never going to know you can talk about it like how's it going but you actually see it in practice you're, ne- you're never quite sure but off the back of that there was a huge amount of uh, uh, criticism from a lot of players and managers and people obviously respect to win the game so that's when I took a step back and thought well maybe I might, I might have got this wrong but I'm a little bit uh, uh, with you I'm interested in the other in the other kind of um, real changes that are coming in but I actually genuinely would have liked to have seen it uh, rolled out in a number of the games just had, had a look at it because everybody seems to be in agreement something has to change I had this conversation with somebody yesterday it's got a chance he was very critical of the, uh, the hand pass change absolutely delighted that it wasn't being Introduced, but at the same time he was saying, "Oh, I just can't be bothered watching a game of football." And this is a big uh, gas apart. So, well, what's what's your answer? You're saying that it's not the the hand pass. So what, so what are you saying? What are you throwing out there? What are you what are you putting on the table? What's you know what's, what's your the alternative? Yeah. yeah, what is the alternative? Yeah, yeah. So let's wait and see if anybody comes up with one. Uh, so there it is, firm grip. That is. Uh, James Ryan, history made by Irish provinces in Europe, um, where all three of them are through, and Connacht are through to a quarter final as well. Picture of uh, Shane Larry there as well. Leinster had also gear up for showdown. Same picture of Gary Ringrose and his dancing feet. Keane starts on pathway to pro license. This is interesting. So uh, Nick McCarthy's new assistant manager will um, be part of the latest intake of participants on the FAI's UEFA pro license course. It's our sixth group at pro license level, says Rude Doctor, and they've named names. Um, so uh, the full list of names is uh, Keith Danny Duff, Danny, Keith Andrews, Andy uh, Reid, Keith Andrews, Jim McGuinness, Finney Perth. Is Jim McGuinness not already in Charlotte? Is that? Can you do the course via Skype? I don't know. Can you do bits and pieces of it? I think you can. I'm sure they're trying to accommodate you as, as best you could. I think the certain days, obviously, you need to be present, but then, obviously, you, you, you go away and do your work, get your coaching hours, and you get your modules done, etc. Oof. Wouldn't want to be in their shoes <laughs> again, the lads. It's a bit of a was it arduous? Yeah, it's a bit of a process. I mean, it's dragged on for about kind of eighteen months. I'd say the, the pro license, the last one, obviously from start to finish. So uh, when did you do yours? No, that's a, it seems a long time ago now. It might be six, seven, eight, eight years. I, I think ours was the second one. This is the sixth, I think. Rudy yeah. was saying ours was the the second pro license that they they rolled in. But yeah, you just got to blinkers on and get through it. All right, he's actually Jimmy Gillis is back in Ireland. You can watch the interview he did with um, Nathan and Kev at the weekend. Actually, it went out on Saturdays off the ball. Um, so Cheltenham and Rooney's set to meet to discuss owners' track boycott. This is amazing stuff here. That um, the Rooney's, who were fourth in the British Jumps Owners Championship, have not had a runner at Cheltenham since the first day of the November meeting, having instructed their numerous trainers don't enter their horses to run the course and so further notice due to concerns the track poses a higher risk of injury to their runners I don't know if this is connected to the going but certainly we've been talking about that on Friday Night Racing but it is mad that um, owners would not enter their horses at Cheltenham because they fear for the safety of the horse uh, the back page of the Irish Daily Mail goes with the rule story but they've gone with it's not fair Tipperary boss fumes over rule change reversal so some interesting quotes from Liam Kearns uh, by Mick Clifford here this morning uh, it's not fair either bring in these rules or don't bring them in uh, and he's complaining about the idea that they shouldn't have been telling them earlier on this year that this might be in or this might not be in for the National League he feels he's prepared his team uh, to play with the new hand passing rule and now suddenly he's got one week to turn it around and not prepare for the hand passing rule ahead of the start of the National League this weekend of course when it comes to Tipperary 
Kerry's uh, situation, being in Division 2 of the National League, an argument we made that when you're in that sort of area, Division 2 or 3, you're in kind of the, the most important divisions and they care about the National Football League more than any other counties do. So you can see his frustration there that the National League is a real focus for Tipperary and suddenly one of the more pivotal rules is just not going to be a part of it. Back page of the mirror is Harry Can. Winks is all a blur after a late, late Kane-style match winner, but Delhi injury takes a gloss of victory. And you've also got Pep's Fergie-style hairdryer. Guardiola's halftime rage keeps title bit alive, according to David Anderson. Uh, the back page of the Sun this morning is Handy Harry, Hero Winks rescues Spurs, Llorente flops and Ali limps off, and £2 million Carroll on Poch's radar. Uh, the back page of the Irish Daily Star is uh, an Irish angle. Troy story. Pochettino to turn to Paris as Tottenham injury crisis deepens. Uh, you've also got Munster Eye at Park Semi. So Munster will look to use uh, Parky Cueve in the event of a home neutral Heineken Cup semi-final in April. Uh, there is only one sequence of results that will allow this to happen uh, and a potential match in in the home of Cork GA. That is Edinburgh and Glasgow, or uh, Munster beating Edinburgh and then Glasgow uh, winning at Saracens. So that is obviously the semi-final draw. It's uh, Saracens against Munster. You would suspect, but in the uh, event of a shock, Munster would have the chance to potentially use Parky Cueve uh, to go up against Glasgow. Back page of the Guardian this morning is Ali's knockout blow for Spurs. Pochettino loses another star player as injury crisis mounts. And you've also got Roger Federer there, the champion, bowing out in Melbourne. And then finally, the front page of the Daily Telegraph sports section is Harry Houdini. Spurs escape with points as Wing scores with the last touch of game. But Ali is injured and the, the squad depth is really being tested from a Tottenham Hotspur point of view at the moment. We're going to get into all those football stories with Kenny now. Uh, first though, here's Stephen Doyle and Kevin Coban after the uh, Huddersfield game. Man City won 3-0, the game is live on Off the Ball. The lads were chatting about whether or not um, Kev thinks City can catch Liverpool. Have a look. Well, we really fancy them in the upcoming Cup games, of course, Burton, and they've got the FA Cup uh, next week against Burnley. Yeah. But after that, then, it's Newcastle in the Premier League. Again, it should be a, another win for Manchester City mm. before those two big games against Arsenal and Chelsea. Is it crucial that he gets six points from those two matches? If he doesn't, is the tight race over? Um, no, I don't necessarily see that, but... City have got the quality and the talent where you expect them to get the six points from it. Looking at Liverpool yesterday, they're probably getting a little bit of luck along the way in that Palace game yesterday, I would say. Um, putting massive pressure on City coming into this game today. And I think wherever they're going, if you play first and you get that win, you can t- you can relax a little bit for a couple of days, watch City and just keep that little bit of pressure on But City are able to keep up with them. So I think there's going to be a, a lot into March and even into April this year I think we're going to see I think we're going to see sides dropping both sides dropping points mm. but if they can win those two games I think it puts massive pressure on Liverpool and knowing that Liverpool have got these teams to play further down the line themselves so that's the, that's the only thing that I would think within City towards the back end of this season now certainly in those two games get the wins in the Premier League get them, get them done and dusted put pressure back onto Liverpool and I think that's the way it's got to be for them to, towards, the, towards, um, towards the end of the season now and I think, I think they've got enough quality within them to, to seriously stay with Liverpool I would probably say I, I just maybe edge towards City for the league that's the way that I'm looking at it I think mm. Liverpool have got a fantastic side but I think City with the depth of the squad that they've got I think City are, are just favourites for me mm. City are just favourites at the moment for uh, Kev that's interesting isn't it? <coughs> um, you no, still, you still in terms City, of what interesting is stroke, in, interesting slash what, do you make City favourites no, I, I make Liverpool. I've made Liverpool favourites probably um, probably six. Start of the season, I would have edged towards Manchester City. Six weeks into the season, I thought, no, I'm, I'm edging towards Liverpool because I had a look at Gomez and and Van Dijk, the partnership at centre half. The first month of the season, I thought that's it. 
that's the difference right there. Now Gomez has been out for for the period of time now, but I'm going to stick with. I'm going to stick with Liverpool. Yeah, I know the strength of Manchester City uh, in depth. They're, they're not going to go away. They're going to hang around. But I still give, I still give Liverpool uh, the edge. I just feel I don't know what it is. Just something about the buzz up there, the atmosphere, how the players speak, body language, the whole thing. Just more of a feeling, really, sensation that even during the season when they were talking, the players, it was. I know everybody wants to win the league. City won to win the league, but it's almost that desperation. This is it. The players were sensing it. This is their opportunity. And I just feel as if Manchester City, as good as they are, between now and the end of the season, they're capable of having that one game, turning up one weekend, flat. You know, that first half against uh, uh, Huddersfield yesterday. Any other team bar Huddersfield, they might be in a bit of trouble. And they've done, I've seen the Champions League when Leon came first game of the group stage to the uh, Etihad never turned up mm. inexcusable what's happened there this great Manchester City team strength and depth boom 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 but ever occasionally it's just not there to focus wherever it is Liverpool for me it's oil the tiger stuff for them this year you can sense it I haven't been inside Anfield but even looking at the looking at the at the camera hearing support speak Klopp just get a sense of it the players know they're ready for it and where I would give them the edge Liverpool Physic- strength and depth Manchester City may be although I don't think there, uh, uh, there's much in it I look at Liverpool's squad at the moment I don't see where the problem is right back yes yeah, certainly but Gomez is going to be back for I'd imagine two to three weeks that will resolve the, the problem there no issues anywhere else uh, around the pitch for me but I think Liverpool just in terms of that real physicality which they have you know that kind of dynamism that pace high energy that real physical edge which, which they have around the pitch for me that is an edge which they have over Manchester City. Manchester City, for all their technical ability, Owen, oh, look at the tech, every one of these players can play, some of the combination play, brilliant footballers, yes. But it, sometimes, when they, when, actually, when they've played against Liverpool, you actually physically look at the two teams, you think, Liverpool have got an advantage here, and they set pieces, etc. but physically... They just beat them. What? Well, City have just after beating them in their last meeting. Yeah, but... Yeah, but I'm talking over the course of the season in, in the English Premier League, that attribute which Liverpool have, for me, it's, it's a factor... <clears throat> which gives an advantage over Manchester City. Before you get into that, can I just ask, how, so who plays right back when Gomez comes back? What's the... Well, Gomez, if uh, Alexander Anner is a fit, and obviously Matip or Lovren would play alongside uh, Van Dijk. Well, that's, that's the answer. He's fine as right it's back. Not per- it's not perfect. Oh, Gomez. Yeah. yeah, Gomez is fine from defensive point of view. He's not going to give you as much... He's not going to be as productive. So they're not just sign a, a right back now and like... You know, you're you're going Thomas to win the be league. back in two or three weeks. At the end of, the end of spend, spend twenty million on a yes to win the league. Yes, <clears throat> but to win the league, but, but Gomez is going to be fit in in two weeks. Alexander Arnold may be back in uh, three weeks. You're bringing another personality. You've spent twenty million a player coming in expecting the play. He's going to play for two games. Then he's going to be out of the team when Alexander is fit. Now he's not happy. Now he's kicking and screaming, causing problems in the in the dressing room. It's not worth it. This, these are the things that you have to factor in. It's a tight group. The, the whole group is together. You've got to be very careful bringing an, an individual, another personality, into the dressing room at, the, at this moment in the season. If you're in Liverpool's position. I think the way it's kind of lent up, uh, lent itself to this tight race at the moment. You look at Manchester City, the first team in Europe to cross 102 goals. Second are PSG to cross 100 goals. I should say they've got 102. PSG are second with 90. Barcelona on 80. Tottenham with 72. It does set itself up that we've never actually seen a, a chaser in the Premier League quite like Manchester City, quite like the firepower that they have. It, it is unprecedented. 
I just fear for from a Liverpool perspective that the whole idea of dropping points and that is acceptable because your chaser is going to drop points just doesn't lend itself to, to a legitimate argument this season because I think Manchester City have come back from their slip potentially in a better shape than they have been at any point in the last two years in terms of their explosivity up front. Yeah. Well, no, it's a fair argument. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Manchester City myself. I, I don't think they will drop a, a huge amount of points, but I don't think Liverpool will drop a huge amount of points either. They're four points clear uh, at the moment, uh, Liverpool. So they're, they're, for me, they're the, they're the clear uh, favourites. But yeah, of course, Manchester City are, uh, are capable and they're not going to go away and it will be a certain ebb and flow but I, I, st- I still lean towards Liverpool. We don't know how they're going to deal with the tension, the pressure mounts towards the tail end of the season. The, this group of players haven't been in this situation for, like I say, top of the table. It's tantalisingly close to league title. You know what that means to everybody to the football club. Those kind of pressures are going to build between now and the end of the season. And Liverpool are going to handle that. Other teams haven't been able to handle it. You know, there's an argument for teams like Wilton under that type of pressure. My gut feeling, though, is that they, 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 can, they can deal with it. This Liverpool team is going to battle hard enough. There's enough experience in there. I just get a sense that they're actually ready to deal with those kind of uh, challenges that are going to come their way between now and the end of the season. At some point there'll be a setback when they go out of the Champions League, more than likely. Uh, that doesn't matter. They're, they're able to deal with that kind of stuff. If you actually go out, people would well, people flip that over and say if they were to, if they were to go out. I know a lot of, uh, talking to Liverpool supporters absolutely delighted around the FA Cup, for example. They got that free weekend, they're going to Dubai for 11 days in preparation of the games coming up, Bayern Munich and important league games either side of that. There's yeah. <clears throat> an argument for saying that's a far better position. Of course, other people flip it over. You want to play every game, keep winning games, mentality, that type of thing. You know what I mean? So it's an interesting one but all, it is fascinating and it's great to see because last year like nobody enjoyed it in terms of procession in Manchester City and we've got a real title race this season but I'm, I'm still leaning towards uh, Liverpool my good feeling tells me they, they have enough uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about was this Chelsea performance on Saturday and uh, Maurizio Sarri's comments afterwards, particularly harsh on his own team. I'm not sure has he actually looked into what happened at Antonio Conte there, if he's got any designs on any longevity there. Just to, in case anybody missed it, he was saying that uh, they were far more determined, Arsenal that is, than we were, and I can't accept that. It was similar to Spurs. I spoke to the players and I thought it was solved. I want to talk about tactics, but it would appear this group of players are very difficult to motivate. I think when you see this type of game where one team is more determined, then you can't talk about tactics. Their level of determination was much, much better than ours yeah. throughout the game it, in the year 2019 is this a smart thing for a Premier League oh, well, that's, well that's a different point no I don't think it is a smart team it's brutal honesty I think he's, he's spot on in terms of uh, to a large extent in terms of what he's saying but you're absolutely right to actually come out publicly and give your players uh, that type of criticism that, that's, you've got to be so careful in terms of the type of dressing room that, and that Chelsea dre- dressing room has been shown over, the, over years to actually just just been the manager off the back of some comments like that so I'll be interested to see how that's received within the dressing room but I think he, he is right in terms of what he's saying but I think he has to look at himself a little bit how he's setting up his team in terms of personnel he's talking about Arsenal having more boy getting around making more tackles high endies that's just not acceptable however if you play a player like Jorginho as a holding midfield in your football team don't be surprised if he's not getting around the pitch making enough tackles and making enough interceptions that may not be a willingness on his part to do it it may be an inability because of the, in the individual qualities which he has because he hasn't got the legs to get around the pitch and make the type of tackles he wants he's got two players David Luiz and Alonso occupying left back and left side of centre half positions who defensively are average at best and are continually going to cause the team's problems down that side of the pitch so 
if he's going to continue to play both of those players in that area of the pitch with someone like Jorginho in front whose defensive side to his game is poor and doesn't give those players the type of protection that a Kante would well don't be surprised if they're going to start suffering continue to suffer these type of results and at times these type of performances between now and the end of the season because if he wants to put that right if he wants to, a team to get around make more tackles physically impose themselves more in the game take Jorginho out of the team for me Take him out of team, but can't in that deep midfield position. Drop Willian in the in the in the in the middle of the pitch alongside a another. And that, for a start, you've got more legs, more dynamism that in that engine uh, room of the team. Throw Hazard onto the left hand side. I wasn't happy with his body language at the weekend. Let him play left of the three where he's more comfortable. Give himself more of a physical presence high up the pitch. Even with Giroud, was kind of limited. He is in some respects more of a physical uh, presence high up the pitch. So that's how uh, that's how actually he could resolve things uh, uh, in a very short period of time in terms of things that he's talking about. But in terms of mentality, I give him. I I I think he's got a fair argument as well. David Luiz is a huge one for me. I always go back to him. He's got a football and player that he is. I wouldn't like him in my team. I wouldn't be building me, me team around him. I can't trust him. I can't trust him. If he looks to me like a fella doesn't particularly enjoy uh, defending, wants to get on the ball, wants to play forward. Wonderful football, a great distribution, wonderful uh, range of passing, but at times a very poor defender. Makes poor decisions and he's costing his team. The, the one kind of counter-argument to that is the last great moment for Chelsea this season has been that win against Manchester City when one, David Luiz was brilliant and two, it seemed that this whole idea that N'Golo Kante <laughs> couldn't play in a more advanced position was rubbish. From what you're saying there, that was clearly just a false dawn that uh, David Luiz perhaps isn't uh, exactly what's the, the saviour of the Chelsea season and Kante does need to regress into a deeper position for, to get the best out of him. I, would, I understand why he's playing Jorginho there. If you understand how Sarri likes to set his teams up, that holding midfielder, he, he needs to be his best footballer. He needs, the one, he needs to be the one who gets the ball off the back for it, gets on the half turn and gets the team playing forward, good range of pass and very efficient in terms of distribution of the football. Jorginho's actually better than that at Kante. But unfortunately, what he, the problem with Jorginho is he can't defend. He cannot defend. And when they're not dominating possession of the football, Chelsea, they're having to defend and they have to pitch for long periods. They're carrying a passenger in the central area of the pitch where it's, it's almost vital that you've got somebody in there who's got a real acute defensive uh, 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 makeup, and he hasn't got it. And it's costing his team together with the problems behind. So he's got some big issues there. But for me, how he can change it quickly, he's got to change, he's got to change the personnel. But that won't be easy. But by playing Kante in there, he's basically saying... He's basically betraying his own football and principles by playing a player to the type of Kante ahead of Jorginho in the holding midfield position. OK, I just wanted to bring this up. Christoph Terrer tweeted this. Uh, Mauricio Sarri out, Kante as a holding midfielder. Willian out, Alonso should be sold. We should buy world-class players. I didn't realise Christoph Terrer was a Chelsea fan, by the way, but obviously he is, uh, which is helpful because obviously he's buddies with Eden Hazard, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a, a Belgian journalist. <clears throat> Fact is, Chelsea have spent over 500 million in the last three seasons on 20 players. Half of that is spent on players who are on the bench, in the stands, or on loan. And then he has a list of players who he's talking about Batchwai, Drinkwater, Zappacosta, Morata, Bakayoko, Emerson, Giroud, Barkley. They all cost some money. That is a, a lot of money. It, it's like, it's For a club who are like, brilliant at buying young players and then yeah. selling them on for profit. Like, is it the personnel from what he's saying that is affecting the effectiveness of uh, Sarri Ball? Or is uh, Sarri Ball something that should be looked at from his own point of view as something that perhaps uh, isn't the most effective manner of getting results in the Premier League? Yeah, no, I think your last comment uh, uh, is a good one. I think early in the season, they started off very well 
but they were dominating, a lot of games dominate uh, possession of the football. And when they dominate possession, Jorginho's on the ball under reasonably no pressure. He really does catch the eye. Although I don't think he hurts teams enough with his passing. But when they've kind of had, when they've got on the back foot, they've had to defend for longer periods and they haven't been dominating possession of football during certain games, you can see it. They're porous. You can see the limitations of Jorginho in that, in that area of the pitch. David Luiz is getting exposed. He hasn't got the protection that he had with Kante in front of him. Alonso, as good as he is going forward, that was an interesting comment from that fellow from Jersey there. As good as he is going forward, and he's uh, got a good record in terms of goal and assists, Alonso. Again, defensively, 1v1 situations, not good. And the position sense isn't great at times in terms of giving cover to David Luiz, who needs it. He needs help all over the place, on, off his left shoulder, his right shoulder, and in front of him. And he's not getting it, and he's making mistakes, and he's going to make more mistakes so that's the kind of conundrums which he has uh, going forward I don't think the answer is necessarily uh, on, the, uh, on the bench I don't see too many of those players that you've mentioned necessarily I'll be screaming at uh, uh, to come into the team like I'd say I'd argue Barkley I think he's saying get rid of them to be honest he's and actually I, saying get rid of them well, well, and it's, it's, yeah. as in it's a waste of money we spent all this money we've bought these kind of middle tier players that we hope we're going to get an Eden Hazard out of instead of just like buying three players at 100 million who you know are going to play week in week out and be world class which you know they, it is Higuain one of those players? I don't know. I mean, well, well Higuain will come in, but it won't resolve the, the like the, the arguments we've been having in terms of further down the pitch. Uh, and I'm not sure about the Higuain. I'm not absolutely convinced of a great goal scorer that he is. The way this Chelsea team actually plays, that's his problem. Maratas have Maratas a goal scorer, a finisher. He's the type of player who needs crosses continually coming in uh, into the box, getting down the sides. Balls being he was a great head of the ball. Maratas, if you think of all the best goals for Chelsea. Good deliveries coming into the box, getting across people, heading but goals into the box. Higuain is a similar type of player, feeds off those sort of all crosses, deliveries into the box. Chelsea, by and large, coming on the inside, little combination play, looking for that nine to be clever in his link up play. Higuain isn't that type of player either. Let's talk about Spurs because obviously a uh, last minute goal keeps them whatever faint title hopes they think they might have alive. But the injury to Andy Carroll, there's now an injury to Deli Alley. There's some suggestion that perhaps, perhaps Troy Parrott might get some action at this stage is that possible it's possible I'd be surprised obviously with the alley injury I'd be surprised maybe he doesn't come into the reckoning in terms of getting, uh, getting, uh, being in the squad um, possibly on the bench the way he sets his teams up uh, predominantly Pochettino I mean he does kind of deviate but generally it's just with the one orthodox uh, number nine and with Lorente being fit uh, I don't see potentially Troy Parra coming into the team ahead of Lorente I actually think he gets a bad press Fernando Lorente. I didn't watch all of the game yesterday. It was kind of on in the background. Somebody say he didn't play particularly well. But I'm a fan of him. I think he's been harshly treated actually there at Spurs. I thought he's deserved more game time. He, uh, he hasn't had it. I think he's a very good centre forward, uh, Lorente. Technically good for such a big man. And a uh, big target man. Great actually ahead of the ball. Anytime he comes off the bench for me, he actually impacts the game for Spurs. So I don't quite understand people. Kane's out of the team. We haven't got another centre forward. There's no strength and depth. There's no, no ready, ready made replacement. No, there isn't another Harry Kane. But they've got a they've got a, a replacement, Lorente. Lorente is an orthodox, traditional uh, a, a number nine, and more than capable of playing in that uh, uh, Tottenham team. I do, and I hate to be ageist here, but I do wonder if having a thirty-three-year-old striker like Fernando Llorente as your backup to Harry Kane is actually the best way of creating a culture of squad depth. That I don't want to say he's like seen Spurs as some sort of retirement home because he's had moments here or there, a few moments, say like a hat-trick against Tranmere, I'm not sure was that a great moment, but like perhaps uh, kind of even somebody of a different age profile, somebody who's trying to further their career and actually get to the end goal instead of having made all their money, instead of having put down a pretty good career, might be a more effective way of creating a, a stronger squad mentality. Uh, like I'm not sure, is that yeah. like a, a, a ridiculously harsh thing to say about? No, I take your point in terms of obviously a pathway for younger players, and Pochettino's always done that. 
that I think that's the that's the template down there in terms of people say why are they going to spend and bring certain players in because you bring all these players in there's no pathway for these young players to come in and get and get the amount of game time that they need to actually develop so that's why I give uh, Daniel Levy and Pochettino a huge amount of credit they don't make these big purchases for the reasons that you're saying because they open the pathway opportunities for younger players to come in and get that type of game time in relation to Lorenzo I wouldn't worry about the 23 years of age so much for me just at this moment this is a crucial part of Tottenham season in terms of uh, touring the league uh, Champions League football next season in a good position Dortmund to uh, make it to the uh, quarterfinals Champions League so they need someone at the moment to come in there and actually perform and link things up for them and I think uh, Lorente is capable of doing that I think he can link up play because that's the way Tottenham like to play but he also gives them the other dimension when they get down the sides but any type of delivery into the box he's an absolute monster uh, in the air well, so I'm not saying he's up there on the level of Harry Kane clearly but what I'm saying is I don't understand the argument Harry Kane's out injured or disaster so he's got to go and spend 50 million yeah. and to bring the, and his centre forward 2 million on um, Andy Carroll is the word that they're going to spend which seems like the most Spurs transfer that you could possibly imagine at the moment I mean, it's a huge gamble there just in terms of uh, uh, Carroll's injury record. But I think that part, if you were to park that in terms of his injury record, I, 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 I think that's fair. I, I, I can understand the logic of it in terms of the outlay wages. Exactly. Not somebody paying him a year. Somebody who's not going to expect to play every, uh, every single game. That's, when, is that a problem, though, not expecting to play? That's my point about your entry, yeah. is that he's just happy to be on the bench. Is that really the sort not, of squad not happy, he wants to... it? No, you're wrong. He's saying he's happy to be on the bench. Nobody's happy to be on the bench, but he, he'll accept it. He's a good professional. Is that good enough for any Well, it has to, well that's a better situation than having a player spending 50 million, as some people would say. You should be spending 50 million bringing the player in now, paying him 200 grand a week. When Harry Kane's back fit in a month's time, this 50 million pound player now earning 200,000 pound a week is now going to be on the bench and he's not going to be happy and he's going to be kicking and screaming because it's going to be a high profile player with a big kind of personality, big profile, and he's not going to be happy. He's got a huge amount of eruptions uh, in the dressing room. So yeah, you are better with a player like Laurent who isn't going to be happy uh, playing isn't going to expect every game and when he isn't he's going to have the right type of attitude he's going to, he's going to train well he's going to contribute uh, to the dressing room he isn't going to cause a problem and he's going to be ready when he's asked if there is an injury to those players we're talking about Kane for a small period of time he's going to be ready to step in and play his part that is absolutely huge and yes that is the type of player uh, that you want is Troy Parrott good enough to play for this team at the moment? Is it too soon in his development? Yeah, I haven't seen enough of him recently. I mean, obviously, I'm just reading like everybody else and talking to people and, and hearing about him, the impression that he's making. But that's a, that's a decision the manager has to make. I'm sure he's watching him play. He's, he's been in around the first team. So that's, that's a call for the manager to make you know, in terms of the young kids personally. From what I'm here, uh, confident young lad physically looks as if he's, he, he's able to, to deal with it. Confidence must be at a high level in terms of the impact he's made the club, the goals that he's scored for the under-23. So it'd be great to see him get a, a bit of a, a game time, but it'd be a huge, huge leap of faith from the manager to put him in at this stage of the season. But it'd be great to see it. Uh, we were speaking about number nines there. One of the number nines, obviously, who's been the star of the last month has been Marcus Rashford. And Danny Murphy was saying on Match of the Day on Saturday that that's it, job done, he's your number nine for, for Manchester United. No way Lukaku can get back into this team. Do you see it even further than that? Because I think there's a potential that you look at Marcus Rashford in his current form and it's like that's a number nine for the next decade for Manchester United, potentially. Yeah, but I don't even. But I don't, don't think this is off the back. Is I mean, Rashford came into the team as a centre forward. He first made his debut. Yeah. Remember the Europa League coming in, scoring a couple of goals. I think on his debut, playing down the middle. So this is a lad who's been groomed and, and developed as a natural. He is, he is a centre forward. He's been pushed out to play left of a three, which I can understand initially coming into the uh, coming into the team. Huge amount of responsibility uh, playing down the middle. 
better to maybe learn the game, get that bit of game understanding, develop as a player playing left if it's uh, free, a little bit easier to play the game from the side, having a look at all the game on your in. So I, c- I can understand that to a point, but what surprised me is that he hasn't, he hasn't well, under Marino, that he hadn't got the confidence in the player to throw him back into that central uh, position. Again, talking the player down, talking about his limitations, maybe lacking in terms of mental strength, the whole thing, not just Rashford, a number of players. So that was why Marino, to a large extent, was shown the door, but he's always had those attributes. Um, I want to play down the middle, different type of player to Lukaku. I can understand to a certain extent maybe why Marino went with Lukaku because he, yeah, United's insistence going from back to front as early as they did. Ideally, looking for a player with a little bit of physical strength who can actually pin centre half, make things stick, and play from there. Rash is a different uh, type of player, not as physically imposing. Uh, as Lukaku always wants to be on the move playing off the shoulder so if you're playing a different type of game maybe playing through the thirds a little bit and looking to play down the sides and maybe play a little bit more combination play well he's more than capable of doing that as he's shown uh, Rashford I mean he's he's phenomenal I've been a huge fan from an early age and like everybody else I've been disappointed to see that he hasn't been introduced in that central area of the pitch but I think you're right particularly if he goes with a 1 like a 4-3-3 three, three plays an orthodox number 9 I think he's got the jersey at the moment. You could make an argument if he flipped and went to a two at any stage. Maybe you could make an argument with Lukaku there. But it looks to me as if he's made it, almost made the decision, Solskjaer, in terms of Lingard, Martial and Rashford. The attributes that they have in terms of mobility, their technical levels, their ability to uh, kind of combina- uh, combination play, he values that ahead of those kind of physical attributes which Lukaku brings to the team he feels if the team functions a little bit better with those uh, three players regardless of the system like split centre forwards which they played against Tottenham or an orthodox three which they played at the, at the weekend he seems to Solskjaer favour those players with the likes of uh, Pogba now op- occupying a position higher up the pitch which you need to do before the combination play between those players in particular seems to be working the balance is right they're gelling well I think Lukaku he feels doesn't quite hasn't got hasn't got those individual abilities to kind of complement that type of football that he wants to play. So he's a superstar. No, he is. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And he, if you take a step back, you look at his stat. I mean, 100, was that 100, 150 games? Yeah, the yeah. Weekend? I was just trying to check the exact stats In, there. It's like he's played he's played 164 games, including UEFA Youth League, FA Youth Cup, and uh, Under 21 Premier League. So it's like 150 senior games, basically. International, international caps as well as phenomenal goals. He's, you're right, he's an absolute, for his age, you just have to take a step back. We're so used to seeing him play now. We're so used to, so familiar with him. But actually take a step back and how old is he again? How many games does he play? Yeah. And look at those kind of, in, the way he's carrying himself. I never understood, uh, what I wouldn't forgive Marino for, I never understood the criticisms of Rashford in terms of those little insinuations. And I hate that in terms of uh, mentality. Nah, I just... There was always that. In terms of, you could talk about physical attributes and football was what he's saying, he hasn't had not the strongest, this and that. But that little insinuation, nah, he's not quite. There was always that. And I looked at that young fellow and I thought, oh, I'm seeing the opposite. I'm seeing the young fellow who's getting this criticism off, probably one of the best managers in the world, playing at a club like Manchester with all those pressures. He's getting that type of criticism, he's taking it. He's taking it on board, never saw him go to a newspaper, ne- ne- never heard him whinge. Just get on with his game, constantly pick himself up, get knocked back, particularly by your own manager, and keep producing these type of performances no matter where he was asked to play. That indicated to me this is a player with like huge, 
uh, mental strength mm. and a player who actually had the type of personality to actually uh, yeah. to dominate at this football club for years to come. So I, I never understood that yeah, that criticism right. from Moreno. Yeah, it didn't it didn't work out so well. There was one other thing that we wanted to talk about. Shane Keegan was in on papers um, on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he was on with David Snade of uh, the Irish Daily Mail uh, and Sunday Mail, of course. And he had a piece yesterday uh, with a few players who'd been back home from England and playing uh, in the League of Ireland. We can actually just play the clip now just to, to get Shane Keegan's take on the situation. An interesting question for you then, Shane, is with these players coming back from two, three, four years in England and mm. clearly were very good players going over there to begin with, do they come back fitter, stronger, with better technique than the batch who stay? definitely not fit or stronger um, we were chatting about that outside definitely not fit or stronger which is remarkable for a multi-million pound industry how things are just left so loose and on the fly you, you talk to I don't know uh, maybe these four boys but certainly in, in the cases of players that I've spoken to the gym culture is a kind of here are some exercises that we'd like you to do and off you go and do it in your own time even the amount of collective um strengthen core strengthen and exercises that we're doing we're, we're little to none like, right. like a, a, a minor a mi- an inter-county minor Gaelic football team would be doing far far more um, strength and condition work than a, a Premier League Academy team would be in, in that age group it's and hard that, to fathom isn't it yeah, it's one of the first things you do one of the first things you do when you get one of these fellas is you need, you need to try and build them up a little bit definitely strength wise which is it's uh, hard to understand how and, that and can be the case do we, do we think there's maybe some logic over in the UK whereby well let's focus on the technique and that stuff will come later or do you actually just think it's borderline negligent yeah, it would certainly strike me as borderline negligence, yeah. so it would. I, I, don't under, I, I don't know what the justification is. We're not it. giving it some logic, is I, what we're saying. I'm, I'm, Makes I'd, no sense. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to, to, to hear the views of people in the, in the system, although they'd probably just deny it. I don't, I don't know. They come in, I think everybody likes being on the grass, you know, they like looking after all that, and it's do they really want to kind of be shoving these possibly already wealthy footballers into a gym when they don't really want to be in the gym and mm. uh, I don't know it, it, it really does it, it amazes me so it does Kenny what do you think of that? Uh, well I take Shane's point he's always had um, personal experience of players uh, coming back and, and seeing this up close but I, I'd be absolutely amazed I couldn't see a situation at a an academy system or under 23s if these players whatever age that they are going over and, and coming back where they would be left to their own devices in terms of their strength and condition. That is huge. That is hugely uh, uh, structured at, at a football club, whether it's the 16s, 17s, 18s uh, and 23s in terms of that physical condition. And that's absolutely huge at all professional football clubs. So I'll be absolutely amazed. And I think there's a, maybe Shane didn't allude to it there, I think there's a, there's a bit of individual responsibility here as well. So at clubs there will be some collective work done as the group in terms of in the gym but you'll all have your own individual programs so you'll have it now you won't be taken by your hand into the gym by one of the the people and the one of the physical and conditioning coaches and actually led through all your program you'll be given it it'll be tailored to you and you'll be saying this is it here's your program for the next six weeks two three four times a week go and do it and get on with it and it's your responsibility to go and do that if you don't do that and your attitude isn't right and you, you're cutting corners, well, you might find yourself in a situation where you're actually being shown the door at the football club, going back to the situation, meeting the likes of Shane, and managers looking at you thinking, well, physically, you're not where you should be. So it might sound a little bit harsh, but there's a lot of individual responsibility on behalf of the players. Take responsibility yourself, get yourself into the gym, do the programme, get yourself as physically fit as possible. So that's the logic. It's, if you can't be trusted to do this stuff on your own, 
you're not going to make it as a footballer and actually it's self-selecting the weakest of the group. Yeah, well, I think that might sound a bit harsh, but I think, yeah, in some cases that, that will be a factor. Yeah, some lads won't do the work, won't uh, commit themselves as much as uh, they should invest themselves as much. Yes, want to go on to the... Shane's uh, alluded to want to be on the pitch kicking the balls, yeah, but what actually don't want to do the work themselves. I mean, you've, you've got... You know, you can't be led. You can't be all of these things. And I'd be amazed the amount of money are Shane's there not right. some Are there not some 15, 16, 17-year-olds, though, who do need, like this is the structure and they do need a handheld to get to the gym and just to be managed a bit more like that culture you will get that initially a lad from Dublin or whatever part of Ireland comes over to it in the professional environment you will get that initially it hasn't been used to the, all the gym work not exactly sure yeah there will be initially a, a little bit of that you'll be brought in this is what you need to do be careful this do that you'll do your work collectively there's a certain amount of stuff you can do collectively which I think is a good thing in terms of yeah. team bonding harmony having everybody kind of working that's a good thing but ultimately we're all different physically so everybody should have their own individual programs I'm talking 16, 17, 18 year olds here that will be the case you have to slightly deviate concentrate on different things but you'll have to do that yourself and very quickly I mean this is a professional game like you know you, you've got to you've got to pick up the mantle and, and go yourself and commit yourself and, and do as best you can and make yourself the best athlete that you can regardless of the type of work that you're doing now on the pitch so yeah. I think I understand what he's saying but to a certain extent I think you might be letting a few players off the hook All in right. that respect in terms of their mentality themselves in terms of how much they have to commit uh, themselves and some and some and some maybe don't do that and unsurprisingly may find themselves back in the situation that Shane's talking about. Darren, morning, Jer. What a weekend it was for Irish rugby. Munster will travel to Edinburgh as they battle for a place in the last four of the Champions Cup. The province secured their place in the knockout stage for a record 18th time with a hard-fought 9-7 win over Exeter Chiefs at Thomond Park. They had to rely solely on the boot of Joey Carberry to guide them into the next round. The out-half finished the game with a 100% kicking record, his fourth successive game doing so. His coach, Johan van Graan, piled the praise on at full-time. Interesting to have Joey next to me in terms of, of um, composure, but um, the very first day that I met him, uh, I said, or I asked him, you know, why do you want to come to Munster? And he said, he wants to come here to, to make a difference and he wants to fit in and he wants to to make this a better team and I think he's done so in every single action of his on and off the field. Um, now after the Cus game, which he missed maybe one or two uh, penalties or, or kicks to come back and kick 20 out of 20, if I'm not mistaken, that that's incredible. That's a sign of, of pure class and I think his willingness to learn and his willingness to improve is, is an incredible trait of a very young rugby player still. And I think there's a lot of expectation um, on him when he came to Munster, but the way he's handled himself and conducted him in a special man and a special player, and proud to be his coach. Now, the Leinster head coach Leo Cullen reckons Ulster will fancy their chances of springing an upset in the quarterfinal. The Blues set up the Interpro clash with a bonus point victory over Wasps. Cullen's charges were already guaranteed a place in the quarterfinals, but the 37-19 victory, coupled with Toulouse's failure to secure a bonus point, ensured a home tie with some former Leinster players in their ranks. Cullen says that makes Ulster an even more menacing prospect. They're making very steady progress under Dan McFarland this season, so um, there's a lot of their players that we know well, and as a result, they know us very well as well. So, um, you know, a couple of their players have been involved with us in, in recent times, so that makes it a difficult game, makes it a very, very difficult game. 
Connacht completed a memorable weekend for the Irish provinces when they secured their spot in the quarterfinals of the Challenge Cup. They edged a tight and tense game with Bordeaux, 33-27. Andy Friendside will now face Sale Sharks, having already played the Premiership side twice in their pool stage. They'll be hoping to avenge the most recent defeat to Sale as well. The England head coach Eddie Jones is at it again. I regret to inform you he is firing barbs ahead of their showdown with Ireland in the Six Nations. He has claimed that Johnny Sexton gets special treatment from referees. Jones said Sexton has the bat phone to the referee. When he talks, the referee listens. That is because of his status in the game. You earn that, like Richie McCaw did, Jones said in November. That his own number 10, Owen Farrell, did not get the same protection as Sexton. Tottenham's injury worries have deepened after Deli Alley was forced off during the 2-1 Premier League win at Fulham. Spurs already without Harry Kane until March. He's got an ankle issue. Ali could miss a number of weeks with a hamstring problem. Mauricio Pochettino is not planning on using the January transfer market to alleviate the strain on the squad. The Spurs boss said it is not realistic or the right thing to do to solve their injury problems by buying players they don't need. Manchester City have narrowed the gap on the Premier League leaders to four points with a 3-0 win at Huddersfield. Next up, City play Newcastle, Arsenal and then Chelsea. That's in the league. They've got some cup games sprinkled in there as well. Gareth Southgate insists his work with England is not done yet. He's indicated he has no interest in taking charge at Manchester United anytime soon. Recent reports suggested he was on the shortlist being drawn up by United as a permanent replacement for the sack Jose Mourinho. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is in pole position for the gig, according to the latest reports from the English press, having presided over seven wins on the spin. Here's how Southgate responded to questions about the gig. I'm the England manager, and um, it's a privileged position to be in. We've had the best year for 28 years. It's a hugely exciting time with the team. I don't think we've progressed as far as we can yet. I think there's, there's room for us to grow. I think there's a lot of importance in life about enjoying what you're doing. And um, I'm still a young coach. I've, I've managed less than 200 matches. So for me, it's an honour to be in the role I'm in and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Just give us Declan Rice, we don't care. <laughs> In snooker, Juttram convincingly defeated Ronnie O'Sullivan 10-4 to claim his first Masters title. It was the second trophy at one of snooker's Triple Crown events for Trump and his first since the 2011 UK Championship. The afternoon session, a one-sided affair. Trump surged into a 4-0 lead. The 13-time finalist O'Sullivan continued to battle hard and reduced the arrears in the first frame of the evening session. Trump then leading 8-2 went on to win 10-4. Finally, tennis and Maria Sharapova has slapped down questions about being booed at the Australian Open. The 31-year-old was jeered by fans during her fourth-round loss to Ashley Barty. Sharapova then refused to answer a question about meldonium, the substance she served a 15-month ban for taking illegally. What did you make of the kind of crowd's reaction to you today? They uh, kind of booed you when you came back on court after that toilet break at the end of the second set and then cheered for that time violation. Uh, did you think they were... Bit unfair to you, and did it affect you at all? What do you want me to say to that question? I don't know, just the truth, I guess. I think that's a silly question to ask. You took meldonium legally for 10 years to deal with your health problems. I wonder, just now that it's banned and you can no longer take it, is it a struggle physically to deal with the, the demands of a Grand Slam fortnight? Is there another question? You can't see her eyes roll there, but they did. You can hear her eyes roll, I think. Yeah, pretty much. 
that second question there was one of the great press conferences questions. That's a great question. I mean, it's fantastic. Because the first one is ridiculous. But this, I agree with oh, the first question. How did you feel yeah. with people booing you? Yeah, yeah. Hang on a second. Oh, right. Right. It's about the Meldonium. Right. Yeah. That's why they're booing. Yeah, yeah but yeah, that's really a good point. So ask the question you want to ask, which is what the second fella did. Ask, I, actually I ask really the question that you want to ask rather than skating around it. The question's brilliant. We can all agree on that. The first question's actually totally fine as well. It's like they're skating around it. Like I, I just think the, there was some sort of criticism on Twitter yesterday of like what a ridiculous question. The second one was a ridiculous one. When in actual fact, it is the flip side of that. One of the great press conference questions because you're not actually kind of getting into the idea of innuendo here. You're dealing with something based in facts, and you're putting her right on the spot to answer it about it. And what a horrible reaction from an individual who isn't a particularly pleasant individual. And it is fantastic when you're up against it. You tend to show your true colours, and she's been up against it for the last couple of years. And we've seen the true Maria Sharapova. It's that, it's that attitude. I think that's what you, if you're asking what the reason what the people are. And I think it's that's one of the big reasons that how she carries herself, her kind of attitude, and around the controversy has been surrounding her in terms of how she's portrayed herself. Is actually she's the the victim, and she can't understand this type of criticism. At least she's a little bit that is a bit of a holier than thou attitude. I mean, it's a fascinating story. I think the question was a good one. Was he basically saying your body's been used to taking this Madonna for ten years? And it hasn't got it. You haven't got it now in your system. Is it affecting your performance? Well, she, she said she needed much, the Meldonium. That's what, sorry. She said she needed the Meldonium. Well, exactly. But the point he was made. Well, regardless of whether she needed it or not, that's another argument. The fact that you've been taking it for ten years, it's been banned. Mm. Now your body hasn't got it. What effect does that have yeah. on your body? So Brilliant an indirect array. Yeah. So mm. that's exactly it. You're getting knocked out in the fourth round. That the part that doesn't make sense though is because. The demeanour is, is so strange for someone who should be on a charm offensive, regardless yeah. of the circumstances of what the ban is. Yeah. You've come back having served a ban for doing something you I shouldn't think do. It would have been, it it? been great, though, if this question was asked after she'd won, right? Because, like, you can always... Her PR people will be out today going, oh, you know, well, they probably won't say anything. But they, they, if you were defending that, you'd be like, she's very upset having, you know, crashed out of... There's only four majors a year. She wants to win all of them. She's a competitor, tremendous competitor, you know, perhaps you could have dealt with those questions a little bit better. Here's what you would have said. Well, I took Meldonia because I knew it. Was my doctor said it's completely illegal at the time. Did nothing illegal. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's how you would defend that. But, but it would have been great to see that question after the first round when she won. It was like, oh, you're playing really well. This despite the fact you can't use the Meldonium anymore. How, how are you making up for the lack of Meldonium in your system? The, the great irony of Maria Sharapova in press conferences is that uh, her own brand of confectionery, Sugarpova, as it's known, is out there, despite the fact that she's the saltiest individual Sarapova. in the world. So, <laughs> and that, that's, that's pretty much how I would sum up the Maria Sharapova. You just invented a meme there. Sarapova? Yeah. <laughs> let's go. Let's, let's do it. It's, quick, it's a Come quick on, yeah. and easy Photoshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're done? Me, yeah. All right, good stuff. Uh, right, so we had live commentary of Leinster's win against Wasps uh, this weekend on Off the Ball. Afterwards, Conor Morris caught up with the Leinster scrum half, Jemison Gibson Park. A comprehensive win in the end, sees you through to a home quarter final. What was your assessment of the uh, overall performance today? Uh, it was a little bit patchy. We couldn't really get into our flow of things they're pretty good at slowing the game down and a lot of patches so um, yeah overall a little bit patchy with this point it's a little uh, a few of those soft tries but we'll have a look at that tomorrow and uh, reassess going into Scarlet's on Friday night quick turnaround so uh, yeah things keep rolling a lot of the chat this week seemed to be um, guarding against complacency given your position in the group and the fact that back in October you scored eight tries and put up 50 points against the team um, that, that you faced today. Was that part of it? Is it difficult as a player to, to get yourselves up for a game when you're such, such highly fancied and you see the likes of the calibre of play coming back into Leinster ranks? At times, yeah, it probably can be. Um, might slip in 
on the occasion, but I think we're pretty good at managing that um, and you can't afford to against a team like Wasps, especially on their home patch. So that was the thinking going into it. We knew that they've got some uh, incredible players right across the park, so you can't afford to come in here complacent, otherwise they're going to they're gonna throw the ball around and they're going to score tries. And that's the attitude they had. I mean, there's nothing to lose for them, bottom of the pool. So, um, so yeah, there's certainly no complacency from our part, but uh, as I say, we're disappointed to let them feel those tries, but we'll have a look at that tomorrow. Quick word about some of the returning Irish internationals with the Six Nations around the corner. Good to see the likes of Robbie and, and Shawnee back in harness. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have those lads back. Um, massive leading leading influences for us, so um, it's good to have them back in the changing room. And so normally on their own schedules doing the rehab, so it's good to have them back in, in, in the team meetings and all that kind of thing, you know. Home quarter final. It's going to be an Irish interprovincial derby match against Ulster rather than, a, than facing Toulouse for a third time. Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's good while away at this stage it's got a lot of rugby between now and then so uh, we'll focus on the week to week uh, we've got a Six Nations break coming up for the non-international so um, but yeah as I say it's a, it's a long way away so we'll focus on the 40 between between now and then you know. not, uh, not giving anything away there Jameson Gibson Park with would you prefer to lose or Ulster I think they would prefer Ulster right definitely yeah <laughs> um, I think that's um, and I sense that Toulouse wouldn't want Leinster either um, so they, they're staying in France but um, it's incredible for Ulster I think look we've got to give them massive credit when you think the way Racing beat them so dominantly in round two that they've won five of the six games so Dan McFarlane's done a really good job there and um, even though they were woeful for 50 minutes against Leicester on Saturday yeah. um, John Cooney coming on I think Ian Henderson being back was really significant for them um, he's recovered from the thumb injury the thumb injury, I should say, not the thumb injury. Thumb, The thumb injury. Thumb, That's the temporary way of saying it. Um, he's been out for... Uh, yeah, he was man of the match. And you know, they're saying he recovered seven weeks earlier. I think the prognosis they gave her, the yeah, time yeah. frame, was much Made longer. Up. You don't suddenly recover. Oh, he's going to miss the He's recovered a couple of weeks. You yeah. can definitely knock two or three weeks off the, an injury like that, but not seven. But he was brilliant. And I think it's in real contrast to what's happening with England now, when you've Owen Farlow injured, Brad Shields is injured, Joe Launchbury's injured, for the Irish provinces winning four out of four and having the likes of Henderson back, Johnny Sexton is back training. Being able to a take, lot of it is positive. Being able to take Conor Murray off with the game in the balance. Was yeah, that, he got a was, bit of a shoulder knock, but yeah, it's yeah. all positive for for the Irish province when it comes to the, the injuries and so Eddie Jones. Having his minutes managed, or was that like a he had to come off? No, I think injured. it was. Matheson is a very good player. Yeah. I think the game it, it, um, it was stagnating a little bit, and he brings real energy, Matheson, and he's 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 um, he's a quality player coming on. So I think it was just a change of tactic, really, okay. and, and um, I think they wanted something different, and he offers that little bit of threat. Uh, is Ty Byrne okay, or what? The, do we know what the story yeah, is? I met him after the game. It's obviously you can't diagnose. He's it looks like a medial right. ligament injury, and he's trying to run it off. Knee. I mean, this guy's hard. Off, which is a good sign that you're yeah. not you're not gone to the extent that it's it's really serious and you're not getting stretchered off. But um, mm-hmm. he was in a brace after the game, walked out with his man of the match award. So um, he obviously has an injury and, and definitely strained his ligaments. And but I think, like you know, like I said, the, there's no major significant injuries for Ireland and a lot of positive positive stories coming out. It's mad, really, that we come off the back of this weekend and Ian Henderson and Ty Byrne both put down man-of-the-match performances and chances are they won't start for Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's, um, they won't either. I think Toner and, and uh, James Ryan will start and uh, they're the incumbent ones. They're the ones who have the jersey and I think it just goes to show, but it gives a lot of options for who's going to be on the bench and 
and how they'll manage that. And, and honestly, I think back a couple of years ago when, you know, when O'Connell retired and, and Donnie Callum retired and uh, they were there for so long. Um, who were the next? Mallow Kelly retired. There's a lot of quality finished there and, and we were talking about having problems in the second round. Just as there's great depth there now, which is incredible. Was Saturday one of the most intense spectating experiences you ever had at Thomond Park? It, yeah, it was right up there with, with any of the big ones. There's a lot of big ones over the years. I think um, for Munster to get into an 18 quarter final is, is a phenomenal return, to be fair to them. Um, they were sloppy. Um, there was a great atmosphere there, and I think everybody sensed, and even meeting people before the game, they sensed that um, Exeter would come and cause problems. You know, there's often been matches there where, you know, round six Munster, you know, you talk about the danger and the threats and of the team coming, but realistically, you know, if Munster turn up, they'll they'll win and they'll blow them away. There was a certain amount of concern about um, <laughs> about about Mike Haley's mum. Uh, so mum and dad came for the first at Munster rugby game yesterday. Tomond, unfortunately, mum ended up getting too nervous. Spent the last ten minutes of the game hiding in the toilets, covering her ears. <laughs> It was, like the intensity was incredible there, but I think Exeter, to be fair to them, they brought they brought a real kind of steel about them, and their quality side. They didn't show it in the early rounds of of the Champions Cup pool games, but um, they've shown what they can do and what they've done in the Premiership. They beat Saris a number of weeks, a couple of weeks ago there uh, in Exeter, and they sh- you know they're a quality side. There's six or seven of them in the English squad, and. Uh, a little bit of pressure off them because people, you know, they weren't expected to get the win and, and make the knockout stages. Whatever about beating Munster there, denying them the losing bonus point and stuff was a bit a tall order, given Munster's recent form and the way they played in Gloucester last week. So it was a nervy kind of performance and unbelievably compelling because the hits and the intensity were, were phenomenal. It was, it was full-blooded. I think Jerome Garces didn't referee the game for both sides and there was a lot of offsides and there was a lot of illegal stuff going on from both sides um, but it was intense I tell you and they're relieved at the end there was a lot of relief there they didn't quite play to the level that they're capable of there was a weird bit well they had 11 turnovers or handling errors which is you know if you're up in double figures and handling errors um, it's a lot in rugby and uh, that kind of tells its own tale they, they I think Exeter at 60% possession yeah what do you put that down dominant team usually are Munster at home where they squeeze teams out and even if they're not playing free-flowing rugby they usually hold on to the ball well and it's the same in soccer isn't it possession it's is nine tenths of the law you know yeah, yeah. if you have the ball and, and, and keep hold of it the yeah. opposition can and particularly at home that's exactly what you want to do people often ask me well, what's the difference between home and away well at home you have familiarity you have the crowd you feel a different sort of energy um, you set a tempo all that kind of stuff the opposition are travelling they're coming into a bit of a cauldron Exeter just kind of held on to the ball for you know, long periods of the game and when Munster, Munster then tried to build some sort of sustainable pressure, they turned the ball over. Even in the second half when you felt, look, this is going to turn around a bit, Munster are going to get their purple patch and their dominant patch. And yeah. Was that conditions, Alan? No, I didn't say it. Was that conditions? It was pressure from the, the opposition. Oh, literally, oh, yeah. not in terms Massive of slippery. pressure. Not yeah. really, no, no. Munster were a little bit sloppy themselves. And you sense that they were kind of waiting for someone to do something and that they maybe expected this is going to turn, this is going to change. And uh, they just, like, to be fair, Exeter were unbelievably abrasive, aggressive, in-your-face, frustrating team to play against, very powerful. And they just... they, they kind of upset Munster a little bit and, and uncharacteristically 
they didn't have any kind of control of the tempo of the game. So if you're Van Gran and the rest of the coaching staff this week, what are the things you're doing to make sure that this is something that the team, the next time they're faced with a scenario like this, they do assert their game? Well, I think what you would do is you'd look at their first and second and maybe third phase plays and be way more efficient because a lot of stuff broke down after maybe one or two phases. Um, they had issues with the line speed of Exeter, so they tried to kind of move it a little bit, and Carberry was had that kind of energy to try and move the ball and ambition, but they were just coming up with this umbrella defence and just turning Munster back inside and just shooting off the line. And So I think managing the game better, certainly their first strike from phase play, they need to be a lot more accurate um, around the breakdown and maybe send in one or two more numbers. And then their management, where they play the game. They probably overplayed a little bit and tried to overplay a little bit at times where they should have looked for a little bit. And their kicking game was poor. So, honestly, when you go back and look at the review of some of these games, they, they learn a lot from it. And the big positive is you take the character and the fight yeah. and the energy. But honestly, it's not, it's not me giving the kind of speak and Van Grand giving it afterwards that they were a good side. They're a hell of a good side. Exeter. And they're a yeah. physical side, Ger. I'll tell you, honestly, you would be incredibly to, to be up close to some of the hits and the intensity and the energy that, that they were putting into the game was phenomenal one last point were Exeter a little bit brain dead absolutely kicking for the corner instead of sure. taking the points and I think they should have taken their points and tried to do 3-6-9 scenario rather than going we've got to get 7 points we've got to go 7 ahead of Munster here um, and, and, and deny them a losing bonus point get it to 4 or 5 and then maybe hope towards the end of it you can maybe force a drop goal and make Munster panic a little bit yeah make um, Munster chase the game so um, Munster needed to uh, at least get a losing bonus point to go through mm. which is a weird situation for them to be in it was yeah. and maybe, that have, game, but maybe that affected them a lot of these round five yeah. and six games for Munster in the past number of years is, is games they've had to go for yeah they've had to go for and now to be fair to them I thought the way they started the game in the first 10 or 15 minutes, there was a real aggression, there was a real, right, we know you're going to bring fire, but we're going to match it, and this is Thoman Park. And in fairness, their application and their effort levels were, were brilliant and their desire, but they just, for some reason, there was a sense of panic started to kind of creep across the board, and they just dropped balls, they lost balls in contact, there was, you know... A lot of it is down to Exeter's credit, but Munster needed to be a lot more efficient with the ball, and they just turned it over. And normally you, you associate Munster with building 10, 12, 15, 20 phases and yeah. wearing teams down. They got to four or five, I'd say, max on Saturday, which is easy to defend. And then at times you saw Exeter jumping around when they turned the ball over. They, they got lifts from that at, at, at big times in the game. But they did show incredible resilience and character, and they're on the back of a really good run. So this is another win, and that was probably the most important thing as they went off the field. We won the game playing poorly yeah. against a very good side who stopped us and frustrated us. And, um, but they didn't have any line breaks, and that's where Exeter didn't capitalise on that possession they had and didn't take their scores, you know, when, when, as you said. Uh, Billy, sorry, Jan, go ahead. I was just going to say, in the paper this morning, Billy Keane is saying that he heard someone behind the press box describe um, Billy Holland as a bait when he made that uh, line-out scene near the end, which I presume is as big a compliment as you can get from a Munster perspective. How big a risk was that, that, that move for, on the line-out from Munster? Well, uh, you, you just sensed that um, there was, was a bit of inevitabil- inevitability about maybe what Exeter were going to do here if they won the line-out because their mall had been strong. Armand scored the first run. 
their body language going up to that line was we're going to get over here and this is going to be devastation and you, I, you're waiting for that eerie silence to come and then they'd won a few to the tail and I think Billy is very intelligent and he's a really good line out operator and he, his impact over in Gloucester was brilliant as well when he came on for Peter O'Mahony to be able to bring on a bit of experience like that and um, he's the one who's putting pressure on Stander and, and Lockman to get him up there and to be fair to Stander he turns and throws him up it was a really really crucial part and it was game turn changing for them to win that line out so his impact was massive in the last last couple of weeks Just a quick one bit of a throwaway. away you, you mentioned that earlier about potentially the semi-final uh, game at uh, uh, Parky Cueve as opposed to uh, Toma Park mm. Yeah, so they, if, I know it was a little bit down the road but how would the players potentially feel about that you oh, They'd love there? it they'd love it um, oh, really? it was mentioned last week as a possibility because obviously these things have to be sounded out so I think there has been a bit of sounding out <laughs> which uh, won't go public but um, Saracens and Glasgow play in London and Edinburgh play Munster in Edinburgh um, Saracens obviously finished one in the seedings Glasgow finished seventh or eighth eighth, eighth they finished yeah. eighth um, if Glasgow were to beat Saracens which is unlikely but they're a dangerous side yep. um, and Munster were to beat Edinburgh that would be the case that they'd go to Porky Creek. Well, you spoke Cork. about the Tom and Factor. I know, I know in terms of the lads you saw it'd be great to go it there but really neutral venue for semi though it can be just in the home, home country neutral. But it has to be a neutral venue. Yeah. So I think going to Cork would be, look, it may not, it, it's highly unlikely that it'll yeah. happen, but you've, what is Porky Creek? 45? Yeah. 50,000, is it? 40 something, yeah. yeah. Um, it'd be incredible. And he's played there. He's played there in the. But you know, funny enough, yeah, I was down there for a, a Lynn's benefit for a game, like, yeah, and I, I do remember we're walking around the uh, pitch after the game. I do remember thinking, wow, you get a. Well, we're talking actually about would you ever see an Irish football? Game down. Game I was there. saying, you know, I'd love to see a really important. The terracing is quite close, yeah. isn't it? And yeah, the stands. yeah, ju- yeah. Just the way it's shaped, yeah. I thought. I'd say, I just thought, you know, the noise in here would be absolutely phenomenal. Just the way the, the stands are actually shaped. So whether it's a football game or potentially game, more likely yeah. a rugby game. Well, it's nice. it's for for that case, uh, that scenario to happen. Uh, it's you have two results there. Monster in fairness, um, and I know this will. It'll be put to bed for uh, for eight, ten weeks, but Edinburgh, Jesus, they're they're a really, really dangerous side, and I think Cockrell, Richard Cockrell will be, he'll be loving the fact that now it's Monster, yeah, yeah, because he's he'll know that will really focus his team. They lost the semi final last year in Thomond Park in the in the Pro 14, a game that they could have won. And they cause monster problems, so they'll, he'll be loving that scenario. Richard Cockrell is it? Is Tom is um, Parky Would it be available? Would it be open? I don't know for certain, but there's there's talk. Um, Derek oh, Foley's talking about uh, in the Star. I think it has been mentioned, and a few people mentioned yeah, on Saturday. Okay with it? Is that well? That's the big question. That's the, what I'm asking. Like. Yeah. Um, uh, has anybody asked you? Never had any issue with Parky Queen before. I mean, <laughs> we've got to got to get away from that, haven't we? We've got to park that one, haven't we? I know it was quite well, an issue for, 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 for Monster people. If it did happen, it would mean either coming to Dublin or going to Cork, and you know you're at home in Cork, yeah, and yeah. all the Cork rugby people. I think there'd be listen. There'd be a massive furore about it again, and the poor GA'd be <laughs> probably bullied into a corner again. But that scenario may not happen, and it's unlikely. Like rented out. Yeah, the GA would make a fairly healthy. Yeah, they would. Yeah, but let's let's wait and see. Yeah, yeah, it would be. It would be. You know. So it's um. Anyway, thank you. Are we? No problem. Oh, here we we go. Here we go. We'll have no problem. We'll wait and see. (laughs) Got to go and support uh, Glasgow now. Wait, Harrison's. That's your next step, Kenny, to get on this.
<laughs> Let's talk about um, the Leinster game. Um, again, the kind of weird situation where they know exactly what's going to happen. It's impossible for them to finish first or second uh, by the time the game kicks off. So it's a bonus point that they need. And like They played well, really well in patches and then kind of went to sleep for 20 minutes and wasps score a little bit but it was never in doubt never in doubt and uh, I think they were really efficient um, and they brought a fair bit of intensity and pace to their game early on and that just kind of blew Wasps away 20 points and nil at half time away from home you just think this is this is um, this is Leinster and, and Wasps are just their body language is really poor uh, their enthusiasm for gathering high balls the box kicking from Gibson Park was brilliant um, and just their overall control and management of the game was really, really, really efficient. And you, you, they didn't really have to get out of third gear, and they were still 20 points up. Um, Wasp had been dreadful in the competition, and Di Young, after the game, has kind of been sarcastic and condescending, saying, you know, poor Leinster, and you'd have to feel sorry for him. Jack Conan pulls out, and they can bring in someone like Sean O'Brien. He's given out about salary caps last week. It needs to be increased. Like he needs to look at his own team and look at the own his own depth and quality that they're bringing through. And um, Leinster have been the best team in Europe for winning it last year, and they've they dismantled Was in round one, and that was the game that sent out a really a message that they they had that hunger and desire. Losing to Toulouse away is going to cost them probably a home semi final, yeah. which makes it trickier, particularly when you're going to France like that. So they'll have to go the harder way if they want to retain the title but um, they were very very dominant yesterday I know they conceded the three tries in the second half but to be honest they were they were never in doubt of Wasps getting back into that it was it was a very dominant Leinster performance Are the Die Young comments I wonder indicative of a general English tone uh, English club tone I they're should looking say for to... excuses and they're looking to blame people and they're looking to uh, be condescending towards the Irish players saying that well they're rested before there's no relegation to Pro 14 and they get rested and get and managed and all this stuff. They never seem to mention how good the players are. They're looking for reasons of we're all our players are tired and we don't have enough depth. They have a bigger budget than Leinster Wasps. So why, why don't they have enough players? Where are the academy players? England have, you know, I think they've won three or four of the last under-20 championships. Um, where are all these players coming through? Um, they've contested, I think... Eight of the last 11 finals in the under-20s. Um, I did a piece on it on Saturday. And um, where are all these young players coming through? And you look at Leinster, the amount of young players that they've brought through. The amount of Leinster players that are... There's a couple in Munster, there's a few in Munster, there's four or five in Ulster as well. There's a number in Connacht. There's a conveyor belt of, of young Leinster players who are having an impact in all the provinces. And you know, where are the English young English players that are going to grab hold of... Uh, at 19-20 and you go wow mm. these guys are going to go on and play for England very quickly and they're not producing that so they're trying to sign overseas players and then they're making excuses that well we lose against the Irish provinces because they rest their players it's nothing to do with you never hear them saying because they've outstanding quality yeah. and they've outstanding development and they've completely turned the tables from 2015-16 season when Leinster won one game in six Munster didn't qualify Ulster didn't qualify the last three years have been there's been a massive focus from all the provinces, and the pathway here for young players to get a chance and get an opportunity has has made a real difference with the provinces. So I'm kind of sick of listening to them saying oh, it's because we've a we've a way smaller playing pool 
than, the, than England. They have the biggest playing pool in the world. And all they do is say, well, you know, it's because Ireland rest players. It's because Ireland rest players. It's because Ireland have good players. I never hear him saying that. I never hear him saying the development, the pathways. Um, and they beat, more often than not, they beat our under-20 side. So it's not as if we've been dominating in under-20s and winning championships for the last 10 years. We haven't. We have a lot of good young players. But you go back to that, I think it was the 2016 under-20 final. Um, Got hockeyed. Well, we're beaten, yeah. Well beaten by a very powerful English side. But Jacob Stockdale played that day. Um, James Ryan. James Ryan. And Andrew, and Andrew Porter, Max Deegan. But the three, James, yeah. James Ryan, Por, uh, Porter and, and um, Stockdale have up on 30, 35 international caps between them now. Stockdale has been touted as probably one of the best wingers in the world. Yeah. James Ryan is no, in my... It's because he's rested, Alan. Yeah, because he's rested. He, he's got his um, smashed. James Ryan is, in my opinion, right up there with the best second round in the world. And like this is something you expect from English teams that these 19, 20 year olds are going to come through and they're superstars yeah. and the guys up in Newcastle and down in London with and it's just our our systems. It's not luck either. It's not a. Yeah. It's not. It's nothing to do with resting players. And for Die Young to start saying he's had a lot of injuries, in fairness, but and the Premiership there is a fair intensity to it. So in 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 they have some mitigating factors there that there is a fair intensity to the Premiership. And it's a kind of a must-win every week mm. for, for financial reasons and everything. But it's just too much listening to them saying, oh, it's, it's because they rest players. It's great listening to it, though, isn't it? <laughs> it <laughs> that constant kind of whinge, you know, you take it as a, yeah, it as a compliment. But Saracens, Kenny, are a team in London who have had a lot of recruitment over the years, overseas recruitment. But they've put a massive emphasis under Mark McCall to develop their academy as well. Right and have some sustainability. Their academy has been very productive for them and is very productive. So um, academy is the way forward. And sometimes... Especially in professional situations. It, it where can, you can happen, pick, though. You can literally handpick the but best teenagers from the country. But for the current country team, Jerry, it's, it's kind of like Premiership Soccer. It's about winning the match on Saturday. It's not about, Jesus, I have to look after the academy as well. It's about how am I going to get a team in the field as quickly and as possible. Sacked, yeah. And there is pressure there. I just want to talk a bit about uh, Jack Carty, a brilliant intercept try at the weekend for Connacht. Uh, Andy Friend tweeted afterwards, a moment to savour, well done, at Jack Carty 10. Looking forward to taking on sale in the ECC quarter-final in late March. Focus now switches back to Pro 14. With Cardiff Blues is coming Saturday, another huge challenge for us. It means nothing, but he's on Twitter and he's, I, I like, it's great. I find it very strange that the head coach is tweeting one of the players to say, well done. <laughs> 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 to be fair, it's a change in uh, modern times. I can't imagine yeah. Tony McGahan or Declan Kidney sending a tweet saying, well done, Quinny, great performance on Saturday. Well, in case I was shocked. Shocking the next, next week, week. Yeah. and then I was saying you were my friend last Saturday and you were telling the world I'm great and now you're dropping me um, so it is a kind of a change in, in tact really isn't it but look it's refreshing to see Andy Friend seems to be very open kind of uh, enthusiastic positive, that, it's a positive, positive though isn't it's it it's a lovely that positive there, message yeah. yeah I'm not saying it's a negative thing no, I, I, I understand kind of totally strange. what you're saying but um, and uh, but uh, he was he was great Jack Carty again and maybe he's kind of answered a few calls and, and maybe Joe Schmidt is has given him that bit of confidence now by p- picking him in the squad, and 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 Ross Bourne obviously be frustrated that he wasn't named last week. Yeah, 
Um, Maybe Jack Hardy's just the, the better out half, more prepared to stone to the Six Nations now. I get the theory that uh, in terms of mind games, it works perfectly from Joe Schmidt's perspective to leave Ross Byrne out and maybe it'll give him an option later on in the year. Or maybe well, Jack Hardy just. Ian Henderson talking about mind games. He said it after the game, Joe, like they don't know. Some of them didn't even know whether they were going to Portugal on, on Saturday right. at that stage. So they're traveling Monday and some of them didn't even know if they were going to travel even guys named in the squad because some of them will be released back to playing for Pro 14 this weekend and uh, that Joe plays mind games not just with the press but with the players so it is a scenario Ross Bourne will be training with the squad throughout the Six Nations and OK so the, the squad going to the Algarve is the same squad that was named last week though right? Yeah or but they may not action? all go because oh, right? some, of them, some of them will need matches well does Sean O'Brien stay at home and play a game? It's his first game back. Does he need another game? Not according to Owen, about an hour and a half. No, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a factor. Yeah. Yeah. Match fitness is not a factor according to Owen. He's just straight in the team. End of. Straight off. Well, For Robbie so Henshaw, he's, that, putting, he's yeah. putting Robbie Henshaw straight in the team. Well, he, he looked very sharp yesterday. You know, he was, he was, I think um, you bring O'Brien, don't you, to the Algarve and go, like, you just need to be back in the squad. and No? But some players are different. Alan know. says that they're, they're I'd, different I'd, I'd rather play. Mm. Would you? I'd How long has he been out? How long has he been out? 12 weeks. They've both been out 12 weeks. weeks. Yeah. Both been out for 12 time. weeks. And they, they played 60, 55, 60 minutes yesterday. And to be fair to them, both of them were really good. Yeah. Um, you need another game. I think you need another game. You need to... And now, is, is it a risk that... God, they might get a banger or not. But you've got sure, to take yeah. that chance. I think you need another game. You need to get that rustiness out of the system. Maybe 40, 50 minutes again. Maybe they sit in the bench and come on for the last 25, 30. Mm. Maybe they need to be out doing the warm-up and that whole game preparation stuff again because it's a mental thing as well. I don't know. Maybe they'll go to the Algarve and there'll be some of the injured guys who, who are lacking a bit of match fitness will be taken aside and do some rugby fitness and kind of rugby conditioning, which yeah. sometimes is a little surge that some of them need just to be ready for the game. Um did Sean O'Brien play his way onto the bench at least for the Six Nations? That he's he, he, back now and he played he looked, eight, so therefore... He, he, his enthusiasm was there and he made a lot of good carries and fairness, a lot of good tackles. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard when you're initially named to the bench and shortly before kickoff, then you're kind of, you're starting. It's a different scenario. But look, he wants to get back and the guy deserves a break. He deserves a little bit of luck now. He's world-class player. When he's but Van der Fleer is well. the seven for Ireland at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah. It depends now how, and a lot of this will depend on how, if he goes to the Algarve, how he trains this week. Yeah. So if Sean O'Brien is sharp in training, Joe puts a lot of value in that as well because his training sessions are short but highly intensive. Or does he play in the weekend? How does he play at the weekend? So does he need more minutes? So he could well be on the bench because someone like Sean O'Brien having his kind of experience and, te- and temperament around for that you think uh, that's a factor regardless of even on the bench even having him in the dressing room even having him around the group on the day the day yeah. leading up to he's the game the day of well, the game Kenny, around he's, the, he's a hard, a presence like he's a hard bastard you know what I mean yeah. he's hard and he's he speaks and he's vocal and he's been through a lot he was you know but then in saying that there's other guys here who are in top form at the moment as well mm-hmm. so He's, uh, he's a fair good, few conundrums there to, to have, uh, selection yeah. conundrums. All right, we'll, we'll get to uh, go through them over the next uh, 10 days or so. We will be talking about um, England and the Eddie Jones comments tomorrow. We'll get the view from England about uh, his trolling 
It's kind of boring trolling at this stage because he's not very good at it. It's like, oh, you're having to go with Sexton again. At this stage, ah, it's, it's not boring. Ah, no, that wasn't, I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't a... That quote you read about Sexton, it was actually very complimentary. The phone. But at the same time, obviously, he was putting no, it out there a little bit. On the put it out there a little bit, like. Influenced the referees. And he's been known to go to referees' meetings uh, which they take in some of the coaches and go, <laughs> right, the refs are going to do this, this and this for November. And then... He goes a week later, what was the point in going to that meeting? Nothing has happened, you know. So he's always playing those mind games with the refs, with players, with coder coaches. Uh, initially, I used to go, well, this is quite insulting, but now I think it's just humorous. I wouldn't put too much stock into it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I thought he was very, actually quite respectful towards Johnny Sexton there. I thought he paid him a big compliment. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, yeah. getting his message out there exactly. at the same time. He's, uh, he's playing both sides. You're, you're hook, line, and sinker, Kenny, you fell for it. <laughs> uh, Mike Carlson's going to be with us in just a second talking NFL here on OTBAM. First, here's Jim McGuinness talking to Nathan from Saturdays Off the Ball. Do you have a, a set style of play in mind that you want these players to go out on the pitch with, or do you wait till your squad is finalised and then work around the players that are there? No, I think I do have a vision. Like you know, in terms of systems and, and stuff, I wouldn't be absolutely wedded to anything. You know, I think that even when I was with Donegal, that was very important. You always have to have something up your sleeve. You always want to be able to bring something different on any given day and sort of be able to mix it up and stuff. So I think that's important. But at the same time. The principles have to be there every single day. And, you know, we were uh, in the early days in Donegal, 2011, like we were very defensive. And, you know, a lot of that was down to what went on in the past, that we were hemorrhaging a lot of goals and big games. We know the boys had been through a lot psychologically. And so, um, you know, and it was important for us to get traction early on and then to, to build from that and, and become better and better and better offensively. I think it's a wee bit easier uh, in terms of uh, the defensive side of things uh, and, and football and soccer because, you know, you've got to play out through the pressure in Gaelic. You can put the ball under your arm and if you're strong enough and physical enough, you can break that tackle. Uh, and football, if you're being pressed aggressively, you've got to find an option. And if you if you press well enough and correctly, you know, the you, you should be able to force that ball along. And so... The, the pressure and the intensity, the principles of that will be the same, but maybe where you can execute that in the field would be slightly different. And obviously, depending on the quality of the opposition and how good they are playing out, you know, you can set your, your line very high or a medium or a low block. But, we, you know, I'd like to think if we get the right ad- athletes in, you know, with good technical ability, that we'll be able to take the game to a lot of these teams and put them under a lot of pressure, maybe further up the pitch. All right, let's move on. We're talking about the uh, NFL, and it's the old dog for the hard road. The hottest QB in history is out of the tournament after an amazing piece of um, coaching and brilliance from Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. It's going to be the Rams against the Patriots after two overtime games. And Mike Carlson, oh, sorry, it's, it's actually Bill Belichick. <laughs> Thank you, Jer. How are you doing? Nice intro. I'm doing fine. I'm <laughs> feeling good. Somebody somebody said last night during the game that doesn't doesn't Bill Belichick look like a guy who's just got the car the car repair bill from his mechanic? <laughs> he, he didn't look happy for most most of the game, but you're you're right. It was a, it was a a brilliant performance. Um, not least because they they played so well in the first half game plan everything worked perfectly except that they probably left points on the field that they should have scored but the Chiefs adjusted really well in the second half just as they did when the two teams played in Foxborough um, in week six of the season and New England then adjusted back um, to win the game and of course 
they were lucky in the sense that they got they won the coin toss in overtime and Kansas City never saw the ball, just like the overtime win in the Super Bowl against Atlanta. And and for somewhat the same reason, Atlanta, um, Atlanta's defense was dead tired by the end of that game. The Chiefs defense was completely beat. They played 94 plays in that game, um, exactly double um, what their offense played. And by keeping them on the field, you, you tire them out. And toward, you know, toward the end of that drive, it was just pretty obvious they were going to be able to run the ball in and score. The, the opening of the game was textbook, brilliant coaching. It was exactly what they wanted to do. It was just slowly eke your way down the field and make sure that you are uh, keeping hold of, of the ball and running it. And that's exactly what the Patriots needed to do. They needed to play in front. It was If they'd scripted the first half, they couldn't have scripted it any better. Yeah, they, you'd like to have back Tom Brady's interception um, in the end zone. And uh, you'd, you know later in the game, you'd probably like to have back Bill's decision not to kick a field goal and, and to go for it on fourth and one and, and, and whatever. But um, it, it was... It was a brilliant game plan in the sense that they did almost the same thing as they had done the week before in the playoffs, but slightly different in terms of how they executed it. And they were daring the Chiefs to stop the run. And, and the Chiefs adjusted at halftime. They they normally play a three-man front. When, when they came out in the second half, they were playing a lot of four and even five-man fronts with a lot of their big guys um, up in, the, in those front four. And then New England went to the passing game. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, however, the Chiefs' offense came, you know, discovered that New England's defensive backs were not really that good at covering some of the the Chiefs' receivers man for man, especially if you didn't go to Travis Kelsey and and um, Tyreek Hill. But but you know, you saw that they took Kelsey and Hill pretty much out of the game. I think they had five catches between them for the game, and they attacked the Chiefs' weakest point, which is run defense, and they did both ruthlessly. I mean, that they were willing to give up. You know, okay. If you're going to beat us, if you're going to beat us with somebody else, go ahead. Sammy Watkins is going to beat us. Go ahead, Sammy Watkins beat us, beats us. But Hill and Kelsey were not going to beat them. How did Patrick Mahomes play? He played pretty well. I, I think I think you saw a first year player. Um, you know, not not quite understanding what was being done to him and having a, a bit of problem with the Patriots rush. And that was the other thing. New England doesn't have the kind of pass rusher who wins a lot of battles individually. So they have to scheme their pass rush. And in the last few weeks of the season and the playoffs, what you saw was they have a lot of players up on the line. And you're never quite sure which ones are going to rush. They they don't wind up rushing more than four usually, which leaves seven back in coverage. But for this game, because of that threat of speed, they had a couple of linebackers generally always behind that rush. And Mahomes couldn't figure out how to beat those linebackers until in the second half, they started throwing those little um, wheel routes to the running backs coming out of the backfield uh, along the sidelines. And those worked like a charm. New England couldn't defend them. You know, I was surprised that they just didn't keep going to it until New England figured out a way to stop it. Mike, there's one thing I wanted to ask you to, to explain to us, and it is this idea of uh, a quarterback being particularly vocal, and the older you get, the more capable you are to control your offense using your voice only, or perhaps relying on your voice a little bit more. So last night you had the perfect example of Mahomes, who has is started to do this at, at an advanced stage more than any other quarterback, really, I think, in recent times, but he's still not at Tom Brady's level. How big an advantage is that, being able to, to vocally control an offense? 
Yeah, it's it's really huge. Um, and I think I think Tony Romo made the point during the game that Mahomes didn't appear to be changing any plays at the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Um, and Brady, of course, is changing them, uh, you know, almost every time. And on the on the last drive, it wasn't complicated. He was simply looking at it. Usually, a quarterback will count. And how many players do they have in the box? How many don't they? And if they have another play to switch to, those are, he was looking at who the players in the box were, whether they were the big, slow guys or, or the speedier ones. And then you'd see him hit his helmet like that, which meant I'm changing the play. And they had two called in the huddle, um, one, one, a pa- one a run, one a pass, and they would go to the other one. And it worked, I, I'd say, three quarters of the time. It, it absolutely worked for what for what they wanted to do. Um, and it doesn't depend, you know, what, what you saw in the first game uh, with, with the Rams who kind of like the chiefs have a, have a younger, more inexperienced quarterback with the noise. They couldn't change plays. There was one play where, where Jared Goff, the quarterback actually ran to the guy split out to tell him what the play was and then ran back. And by the time he got back, they had to call a timeout because the clock was about to, the play clock was about to expire. Is this Brady and Belichick's greatest achievement? Because this was considered to be the weakest group that they've had, or certainly up there with the very weakest group that they've ever had. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that uh, for sure. I mean, uh, the, probably the first one, the first Super Bowl was the greatest achievement where nobody gave them much of a chance either to get to the game and they had to have the tuck rule in the snow game in o- with Oakland um, or to win the game against the Rams. Uh, so this is a matchup of that game, a rematch of that game in a sense. Um, but this team was not that good. When you look at the players, and it took them two, no, three quarters of the season to get those guys into, um, you know, to, to figure out what they could do with these guys and how they, they lost Josh Gordon, which made a huge difference to that team because, you know, they didn't have, you saw, you saw in the game last night, you, they didn't have an outside receiver they could go to. They didn't have a downfield receiver they could go to. Josh Gordon would, gave them both, both of those options. And, you know, Kansas City, to their credit, they, they realized J.C. Jackson who's an undrafted rookie cornerback was a weak link in the Patriots defense. They went at him. He had three pass interference penalties called and, you know, and pass interference is kind of a random shot these days when you look at that game and which ones were called and which ones weren't, but you know, none of them, none of them were bogus calls. And so I went to bed right after the Saints got beaten last night, Mike, has uh, Sean Payton been done for hurting an official yet? (laughs) Pardon me? Has Sean Payton uh, attacked an official yet? Um, No, but you, you could understand uh, if if he did. You know, the officiating is inconsistency is the big thing, and I and I think in both games that that was true. It was really frustrating to watch um, at times. But but in that game, if if no, if your listeners didn't see it, what you had was was a, a crucial play toward the end of the game. Receiver down at about the the five yard line. The ball's thrown, and the defensive back simply launches himself. What we would call spearing, helmet to helmet on the receiver, knocks him over before the ball gets there. While the ball's in the air, but before he gets there, so it was clearly pass interference. It was clearly a personal foul for the helmet to helmet. Uh, call, but there was no flag whatsoever, and um, and Sean Payton just went completely ballistic at that at that point, and um, it 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 had an effect on the game. Although I I don't think it had as much of an effect as Drew Brees missing on the first down of that series, where they you thought they were going to run the ball. He threw a slant pass to Michael Thomas which if he had completed, it would have been about an eight-yard gain. They could have then run the ball at will for a first down and killed the clock, um, And uh, but he missed it. He just missed the throw. 
this if if the penalty had been called, they would have won the game because they then could have just knee 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 and kicked a field goal. Uh, they could have won the game if he'd completed the Thomas pass as well. But it, it was one of a number of really puzzling calls through the day. And, and, and the NFL, of course, made it kind of worse by the referee saying he, he couldn't say anything about it because he hadn't seen the play, and, and <laughs> which, which boggles the mind. Um, he's not the guy who threw the flag, but, but even so, how he, how he could miss it um, was, was just beyond uh, – but, but there, there were just a number of, of bad calls. And the weird thing in that game was that Bill Vinovich, the referee, had refereed the Rams – eight times previously and the Rams had lost all eight games and the Rams had, um, I've got the, the list here. They had more penalties for more yardage than the saints did. So you kind of thought that, that he, this was going to be Bill Vinovich going for a perfect nine, but um, it didn't work out that way. Yeah. So obviously there was loads of different ways that the saints should and could have won that game. How much credit do the Rams get for sticking around and making that comeback that they made? Well, that's the big thing, isn't it? Um, and and for all the talk that uh, neither team had a really great defense, it was a pretty much a, a bruising defensive game um, decided by kicks, kind of like Munster against Eg- Exeter on um, on Saturday. And you know, the, the kick that decided it was um, Zerline's fifty-seven yard field goal in overtime. And and you know, you, you just have to admire the the um, the guts of the coach who tries a 57-yard field goal. Now, yes, it's in a dome and conditions are great, but if the other team, you know, if the kick misses, they get the ball back at the spot of the kick, and it's only going to take them 10 or 15 yards to get into their own field goal range uh, and win the game. So he had a lot of uh, faith in his kicker, and, and the key play of the game was Johnny Hecker's 12-yard pass on a fake punt. Um, which uh, you know kind of changed the momentum of the game. They didn't. They only got three points off it because they only got three points off of of almost everything in this game. What, what, sorry, uh, Mike. What, what, what's the situation there? That was a punter who's got a pretty good arm. Is it as simple as that? It's just a, a huge anomaly. Yeah, Hecker. Well, it, you know, it was funny. They were saying he has a better arm than some of the quarterbacks in the league, which which might be true of one or two, but it's not because he has a great arm. But he was a quarterback in high school. Right. Um, he he's thrown a lot of fake. Fake punt, uh, fake punts in the past, and uh, he's he's been pretty good at it. What made the play was the way he actually faked the kick. You know, he went into his kicking motion, and the fact that they didn't have a a receiver. It was Sam Shields, who's a defensive back, but he's a guy who was a receiver in college. Um, he was the he was the target of it, so it, it was great. And you know, Hecker Hecker um, was over here last summer. Uh, I think he's been over more than once uh, to Britain, and you know, he just loves to do it. He, he's funny to listen to talking about it. But you know, while they're while they're practicing, they're kicking. And now most teams, the the kicker and the punter and the holder all go off together while the football team practices on the on on the other side of the field. But he likes to just stay. And they're throwing passes, you know, limbering his arm up. And and when Jeff Fisher was coaching the Rams, he probably was the best quarterback on the Rams. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked about Todd Gurley in his absence from the game. He looked quite upset and a little bit shook afterwards, and yet did actually run in the touchdown when they needed at the um, at the end of the first half. So I, I don't really know what's going on there. I mean, I don't know if we ever get to find out exactly what's going on there. Yeah, I would have, you know, I would have looked um, to see if I hadn't been up till four o'clock watching, <laughs> watching the game, and decided I'd, I'd rather have a little bit of sleep and be compos mentis when I talk to you guys. But um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that it had something to do with his knee. Um, you know, he's he suffered from 
strained MCL um, for most of the season. He looked fine on the touchdown run. He looked explosive and all, but maybe he tweaked it a bit. Maybe they did. They didn't want him in there. Um, he didn't do anything wrong when he was in there for sure. Um, you know, there was some speculation at the time that he might have had a kind of, I want to get in coach. And the coach said, you know, we, we can't play you. But, you know, neither team was able to run the ball in that in that game. Um, it was pretty, you know, I, I would have thought if you were going to tell me one game would go over the over under and, and one wouldn't, I would have thought that was the game that would go over and the Patriots Chiefs would, would go under, um, not least because of the conditions. And, you know, they were both three point favorites, the home team which in bookie terms means that each game is a toss-up and the home team's getting their advantage. The road teams both won, which was the first time since the Giants won in 2011 that a road team had won one of these conference games. Um, and they, you know, they were absolutely right. They were both toss-up games. You know, you, you, you could have, New England did almost everything right that they could do. And the Chiefs played really badly in the first half and still that game went into overtime. Uh, and if New England hadn't scored a touchdown or had, if New England had scored, kicked a field goal, you wouldn't have had any doubt that the Chiefs would be able to come down, you know, and at least tie the game up again if it were, if it were a field goal. And, um, you know, the, the, the same thing with the Rams, the Rams and the Saints. That game really could have gone anyway uh, if either team just executed a bit better at, at, at crucial points. The Patriots opened briefly as underdogs against the Rams and then everybody hammered the line to the point where they're their <laughs> favorites, which makes far more yeah. sense. Um, it's an interesting question because the Rams are, you know, another explosive team. If New England were playing at home, I think they would be favorites to the Rams. If they were playing in L.A., the Rams would be slight favorites uh, on a neutral surface. It, it'll be a challenge for the Patriots because of that uh, that speed. And, of course, it's a Brandon Cooks return game. Cooks played his first three years in New Orleans, and he had probably the best game of any offensive player on the field um, against the Saints. And now he's, he played one year in New England after that, and he'll, you know, he'll be the guy that they have to stop in order to control the Rams' um, the Rams passing game. But, but basically these are two teams that have got to the playoffs in the last four games of the season by running the ball. And, uh, you know, you notice, too, Sonny Michel didn't play that much toward the end of the game uh, for the Patriots. And Rex Burkhead sort of replaced both him and James White uh, and was was doing both the passing and, and, and the, the pass catching and the running. And I couldn't quite figure that one out because Michel did come in and uh, score a touchdown toward the end. But, I, you know, I couldn't figure out whether he was just tired um, or whether I can't figure out what the strategic advantage Rex the Wonder Dog gives you um, when you when you put him in. But, you know, he he missed a couple. He, he couldn't get couldn't get a first down conversion on a, on a fourth and inches. But he had a couple of really good runs um, in the end zone. And like I said, that last that last touchdown, they were they were just exhausted. The Chiefs, you know, they were, they were just completely out of gas. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you go up against the Patriots. I mean, Patriots are slight favorites at this point. You think it's like it's going to, we've got two weeks, obviously, to preview this. But your gut instinct at the moment is this is this riding off into the sunset for Tom Brady? So that's a really great question because, you know, he keeps saying he wants to keep playing. He wants to keep playing. But if you win another Super Bowl and that make that means six Super Bowls with four losses, it's it's going to be a whole lot better than five with four losses. Sorry, six with three losses is a lot better than five with four losses. Um, and it would be the perfect time to retire and, and 
Bill said uh, they were doing something with Kraft and the 25th anniversary of owning the team. And Bill said something like, you know, I hope, we, you know, we're going to go on for a long time together. But I, I just think that he and it would be like if he and Brady both quit after a Super Bowl win this year, um, all the Patriots haters out there in America would, would be rejoicing. And Josh McDaniels would probably turn very pale at some point where he realizes he's going to take over as head coach of a team without Bill or without Brady. Like, I, I don't think it's a huge debate as to whether or not he is the GOAT in the NFL. But I do think if he wins this Super Bowl, he will become the most dominant, greatest athlete in, in their field, if that makes any sense. That when it comes to Michael Jordan, there might be some sort of debate between himself and LeBron. But if, if Brady goes 6-3 and three in Super Bowls, there's absolutely no question. Nobody can even hold a candle to that argument. And I don't think maybe Tiger Woods is the only other situation you could perhaps uh, speak about in that regard. But like, I'm not sure do you agree with that, that it's just, it, it, there's no point even discussing it anymore because it's just an obvious thing to say. It's it's really a tie. Yeah, it's I mean, there will be people, you know, debating, debating, uh, you know, Joe Montana, uh, various, various other people's Joe Montana went to four Super Bowls, won them all. Um, but of course, you know, it's not a quarterback necessarily who wins the game. It's a, it's a team sport. But the quarterback is such an essential part of that team, probably more so the only the only person I think has equal importance in any team sport is the is the goalie in ice hockey, um, you know, where, where a hot goalie can win a game all by himself, which a quarterback can't do. Um, and But in terms of dominance, what they have done, it's really hard to separate Brady from Belichick until you actually get to the game and the field. You know, But, but to, to maintain this run, it's not quite dominance, but it's consistency um, through the salary cap era of, of modern football, you know, in a team with 53 players on the roster that, that there's constant churn on, on that roster. Uh, the, the Jordan's a fairly good comparison um, in team sports. Bill Russell was the center on the Boston Celtics team that won 11 titles in 13, in 13 seasons um, back in the sixties. But of course, there were only like eight teams in the NBA for most of that time. So, so your path was, was a lot easier. And, and of course you, you could keep your team together for pretty much as long as you wanted to keep them together. Cause the guys were being played relative peanuts, um, you know, and, and didn't want to lose the bonus check they got uh, for winning the championship every year. Cause they, they basically needed it to support their salaries. Uh, Brady can do a whole lot of other things in his life, uh, you know, not least sit on the beach in Brazil with his wife and count their money for the rest of their lives and yeah. see if they can get toward the end of it. But, but you know, he's fear- they're both fiercely competitive guys. And, you know, who knows? They might just want to come back uh, just because they can. Our uh, resident um, Saints fan in the office was supposed to come in and do a piece with us after last night, but she can't speak because she's so angry. I was comparing the... <laughs> I was comparing the blown call to uh, Diego Maradona's hand of God or Thierry Henry's handball. Like it's at that level. It's it's as egregious a missed call as I can remember in professional sports. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it's brilliant because most most pass interference calls, which are it's it's indefinable. They don't know what. There's no consistency. They don't know what is or isn't pass interference. It's like it's like a foul in basketball. But this one was just sitting out there all alone so blatantly obvious, so blatantly painful 
um, you know, that it's like if you were if you were drawing a, a referee's instruction sheet, it said, now here's what pass interference is like. And, you know, you could see the ball in the air. So there was no question of, of it not being, you know, a pass interference as opposed to, say, holding or illegal contact. You could see the helmets in real time hitting um, in slow motion. It looked absolutely vicious uh, and and you just you know i wish we had had shots of the guys of the the side judge you know who was only about four yards five yards away from the play just to see what his face looked like as he watched this kind of like oh ho, hum, you know another another play <laughs> yeah let's get this one over with i've got reservations downtown new orleans you know i don't want this to go to overtime <laughs> mike we let you get some sleep. Thanks a million for a rest. Stay up for Oh, no, I've done my sleeping now. That's it. It's all good. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest yeah. of the day. Thanks a million. Yeah, cheers, guys. Mike Carlson there um, up after staying up all night. That was really enjoyable. Really good analysis, that. Enjoyed it. He breaks it down well. It's oh, Something always crazy happens in championship nights, doesn't it? It just... I but that can't look. Do you know, I, I haven't seen the... Uh, the foul that you're talking about. All I could... Uh, you'd be able to tell me uh, you watched all was gone at, at that stage... Sometimes, if the foul occurs that early, if they, they're saying the ball was already in flight. Oh, it's Obviously, a- if the ball's close to the players, the players and the ball are almost they're in your vision, peripheral vision. But if the foul happens early and the ball hasn't reached them, the officials their yeah. eyes will almost be drawn to the ball, and you won't actually see how close was the ball. Ball's right to the there. Two players. And the man was it that close? And headbutts him with his Quite helmet close. to helmet. It's like the it's ball right was that there. close. Yeah, it's like it's the shittiest decision you're ever going to see in any sport it's like right up there at least with Maradona over Shilton there's kind of a what happened there that was really fast but like this is VAR is not the answer VAR is not it doesn't solve all the problems if they if they VAR this it would have been perfect it's like oh yeah okay game over Uh, and it like totally changes history because Drew Brees against Tom Brady for the first time ever in a Super Bowl Brees playing you can't say that you can't say that now you're making a massive assumption there Massive assumption that if that foul had been given, that wouldn't necessarily manifest it itself in it. Oh, yeah. you think, in your no, opinion. No, no, no. It's, it's like, all yeah, in the game. It's a jump. It's not an absolute given, is it? Oh, no. They're, they're, so you give the penalty, and then they get the ball on the one-yard line, basically, yeah. or the three-yard yeah. line. Kneel down, kneel down, kneel down. This clock goes down to four seconds, and so he's got to kick a field goal, but it's right in front. Like, it's the <laughs> easiest field goal you're ever going to have. He might have missed it one and a half. times. I saw times. the fake throw, by the way. I will say that. Yeah, yeah. And you know Great. what? It's amazing, because um, obviously I don't know of, uh, anything about the game, but it, it changed the dynamic a little bit in this day, because they were struggling huge up moments. to them. They shouldn't get going at all, could they? And it wasn't a huge play as if it ended up in a... It wasn't a touchdown or anything like that. The only kind of... Got them the next first down, like, Yeah, obviously. exactly. But you sensed it. The reaction of the players... Even the f- couple of minutes after that, it seemed as if they went up a couple of levels. The whole team, almost like a psychological thing, or think something's shifted a little bit in the Absolutely. game. Although nothing had changed yeah. in terms of the points. I think everyone just sat up after that moment. They're like, "We got a game now." Yeah. All right, Kenny. Good stuff. Thanks very much for joining us. We get in for the uh, Super Bowl analysis as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's all from us this morning here on OTBAM. We're back tomorrow morning from seven forty-five. Off the ball is back with you tonight from seven o'clock. Monday night rugby, the football show, and everything else from the weekend sport. Good luck. See you tomorrow. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. Listener.